I can be a great company having 80% market share. I'm the monopoly, right? But I'm doing a very niche product in a very niche market, mm. right? And if I'm already 80% monopoly, 80% market share, and the market, you know, is not growing, it's stagnant, you know, eventually what will happen? Revenues will be, will be flat. Yeah. If revenues will be flat, you know, right. cash flows, profits will be flat. Mm-hmm. If cash flows and profits will be flat, the stock price will either be straight or down mm. at some point in time. So that's one way to think about it. Now, if I have a company that's growing massively, gaining market share, delighting customers, customers are really happy, right? Delighting users. And, and they're addressing a very large market. So I'm thinking about small, addressing a very big. This right. can become so big. And you know, the good thing about, mark, about market opportunities is it doesn't happen in a day. Mm. It often takes years or decades to occur. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. All right, guys, welcome back to the FIRE Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. Today, we have a very special guest slash podcast because it's going to be our first. There'll be two firsts, right? The first is that it is a Zoom meeting, yeah. right? It's not going to be a, the usual podcast. This is the new normal. And the reason it is a Zoom meeting is because this is our first um, overseas. Yeah. Overseas guest. And it... Why? Because he's also number two, our very first Singaporean from across the Straits. Straits, yes. I always forget the, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. So just to give some all of you all listening some background on him and why uh, you know it's really impressive, right? What he has done so far. But basically, briefly, um he had a past in banking, right? Citigroup, JP Morgan, mostly to do with sales. And then suddenly he switched and became the CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Vision Capital. Now, a little bit about Vision Capital. Uh, I will let him explain to you what exactly he does, but just want to give you uh, some, give some of your a sense of the caliber of the man we're talking about, to, talking to today, uh, in terms of performance, in terms of investing performance. Now, you can actually find it on his website, but basically, he has uh, made 230 percent over the past three to four years compared to the S&P 500, which is 70% as of March 2021. Mm. So it's very recent, right? And he's also an author of a book called Vision Investing, How We Beat Wall Street and You Can Too. So the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Eugene Ng, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Angie. Hi, John. So how, how how is before we begin? You know how is uh, Singapore and COVID and all of that? I think right. Singapore is recovering. Uh, I think twenty five percent of the population is getting vaccinated. So I think we're just looking forward to to getting vaccinated and slowly getting back towards towards uh, towards a bit of a sense of normalcy. Okay. How I about would, the investors? Sorry. How about the yeah. investors in Singapore then? 
I think the investors in Singapore, they are coming around. I think more people are starting investing because of, of the dip last year. So mm-hmm. I think we're seeing people coming from the passive investing side, typically when they're just doing indexing. Or, or ETF. Yes, exactly. And then now they're, they're starting to take a more active approach in mm-hmm. investing. I think that's taken a good positive spin. I think it's. Uh, I think money has uh, gotten a bit more, I would say more passive over the many years. Wow. It's good to get a bit more active. And I think people are taking a bit more charge in that. So I think overall it's a step in a good direction. Great. Right. I had a question. Yeah, right? I had uh, something related or unrelated about the travel bubble because uh, I the, I last kept note probably about three months. I thought Singapore and Hong Kong wanted to create this travel bubble. Uh, yes. Is that is that happening or has it happened yet? No, I think I think it hasn't happened. I think we wanted to because I think Hong Kong was was having a good control of the COVID virus, but eventually. I, I, I think because of Hong Kong, they had ex, um, new waves coming up and then eventually we stopped the, the travel bubble. So I, I think it's, I think we're trying to, to get it up. I think Australia and New Zealand has started already. Okay. You know, hoping maybe we can, we can start one with them. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. okay, so I, I just want to get a few of your background, right? So what I find interesting, apart from the fact that you've been a household name like Citibank, JP Morgan and whatnot, is that you actually made a switch from more sales-oriented, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but a more sales-oriented part of finance into just pure, you know, data analysis uh, kind of investing, right? Um, You know, it's different skill set, right? People talk about investment banking and they think that everyone's the same there, but it's a very big big feel, right? And what I've come to realize, at least in my experience, is that people who are good at sales generally not very good at investing. But you seem to bug that trend, right? So you want to share with me, you know, how did that transition even happen? Yes. I, so I started my career with, with City uh, as a management associate. So this was back in 2008. I think uh, 2007 was a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I had finished the Asian financial crisis before a job. So I graduated and then uh, I think in 2008, I remember, I think I was uh, one of the last one to make into CT's uh, management associate program in Singapore. And thankfully I joined in October. And of course uh, the stock price, mm. I, I bought the stock of City and at, I remember it was at $5. Yes, it fell all the way to five, went, yes. <laughs> before you knew it, it went to $1. Wow. <laughs> it couldn't get lower, it went lower, right? Uh, and of course, subsequently, we had the reverse stock split and uh, the, you know, the stock never went back to, to where it was. I think importantly, that was my first ever investment, investment, really thinking, buying about something that could never go up. Mm. I mean, who could go back up, but eventually you know, didn't. Uh, so I think that gave me a bit of a foray. But I think after that, I moved uh, in city. I started off doing credit cards, marketing, insurance, moved mm. to FX sales. Mm. Then moved to, to JP Morgan when I was doing FX sales for, for eight years as well. Mm. But back then I was dealing a lot with corporates and I kind of liked what I was doing. I think more importantly, the way I would, you know, if my grandmother would ask me what job did I do, right? I was, right. I would tell her, I was kind of like a money changer, helping, <laughs> helping corporates change money. You know, if someone needs uh, to convert dollars into euros, I'll help them do an FX. It's just that you don't see the paper money. Yeah. Uh, you probably see it in, 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 num- in numbers. So that right. was kind of how we were doing and we were really just advising, uh, you know, treasurers, uh, the finance managers on how best to catch. I think if I look, if I to reflect back in JP from, from that job, it was very solution-based. Ultimately, uh, because I'm actually a bit of engineering trained, I'm very mathematically inclined. Mm. The way I think about it is always to be thinking about a solution, a problem. Mm. And with a problem comes constraints. So that has always been kind of like my sales approach. It's been not very product uh, pushing kind mm. of uh, approach. It's just really very solution-based. So right. when a customer has a solution, I'll think about something. 
So I think when the natural pivot um, actually came was, uh, as, as, as you wanted to share, was that in, in about my third year in JP Morgan, I had a very uh, tragic, uh, I would say a tragic accident. So back then, I think it was, I should remember, it was Eve of Christmas. Wow. Uh, I was at a beach club. I was mm. having a lot of drinks. And I decided to do a somersault <laughs> into, the, into, into, a, into the swimming pool of the, of the beach club. Okay. And please, kids, do not, do not ever do somersaults into the swimming pool. So what happens was that the top of my head hit the bottom of, of the swimming pool. Oh, gosh. The floor of the swimming pool. And I heard a loud pop. Ooh. And before I knew it, uh, my head was really loose. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and and uh, thank thank goodness I could still feel my my arms and my limbs, and I basically got sent to the hospital, and uh, I was in the hospital bed for about almost close to about I think five days, and I was getting uh, pneumonia. And that's where I found out I actually broken my neck. Wow! I broke my neck. So what happens is that uh, if in the cervical in, in the human cervical spine we have what we call the C one. The C one is the very first bone right at the top. I actually broke that into two pieces. So kind of like oh, this gosh. broke into two. Wow. And um, what happens is that uh, it went through a very tough process of about the next three to four months where I actually had to wear a halo vest. Uh, so a halo vest is kind of a thing that you kind of put in place to hold my neck so that, so that my bones will come back and join together. Mm -hmm. So effectively what I had was I did an operation where I had two things, uh, four things drilled into my skull. Two wow. right here and two right here. Just to, so they, just, they just were to basically drilled into my skull out. and hold that in place kind of like a human cast just to hold it. It was very, very painful. Uh, I was carrying, carrying like probably three to five kgs of that metal structure for, for almost, I think, two and a half months. Or Your neck strength <laughs> must be off the charts. Uh. <laughs> no, actually, the neck strength became so weak because you weren't using it. So it was a very humbling experience. How, how serious that is. So this was actually called a Jefferson fracture, a Jefferson C1 fracture. Um, the doctors and the physios actually told me that the majority or the 90, 90 or 95% of people who, who, who kind of get this actually die. Oh, wow. Of that, of that who actually survive the 5%, 90 to 95% of them actually have some, some, some form of, some form of paralysis. Wow. And when you think about it, I am, I'm in the lucky 1%. Wow. To be able to, to, you know, to be just walking, um, though it's still broken. So actually the back actually joined, the front is still open. Oh. Um, but, uh, I think I take it as every day was it's a living miracle, and then I think that's where I kind of pivoted myself into into investing. Where my wife told me, you know, you're great with math, right? You're great at something. Why not you, you know, choose choose and choose and do something with uh with your life, right? So I think that was a kind of a great push because I wanted at that point of time to to really figure out what best I could do with my life. So I think that that was kind of the, that big shift and trying to figure out. I'll say this was probably maybe around about. Um, was this almost close to eight, ten years ago? Were you married back then when you when you had this accident? No, I I wasn't married. So I was uh, with my my wife then then girlfriend for about uh, just under two years. Okay. And of course, you know, I think this is this kind of times where you kind of get really tested. I see. And uh, she was there. She was there all this while. And my mom, of course, flew back from from the United States to take care of me as well. I see. And that's where you truly know, you know, who who are the who are your loved ones, right? I mean, she took a gamble on me. I think um, we we were very optimistic, hoping, hoping that it would, it would, it would recover. Okay. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad it, it, it did. Right. Yeah. Yes. Th th thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. like, uh, I, I don't think I've heard such a story. Before. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but speaking of 1%, right. Um, let's talk about uh, vision capital, mm. right? Because, 
I mean, looking at your returns, I think there's no doubt that it is in the top probably one percent one percentile. The, yeah, you know, in 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 investing. And before we go into your or uh, your philosophy and all that, what is uh, vision capital actually? Yeah, so so when I think about vision capital, it's really inspired uh, by I would say like kind of my, 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 my mentor. So mm. my mentor is kind of like David Gardner. It's, not, it's my informal mentor. I think of him as a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes to say this, right? We should always be investing in companies that reflect the best vision of our future. Mm. And, and, and vision capital really, I think it's a new way of, of creating that. So when I structured the entire of, of vision capital, it was really just to be really focused on businesses that I think that, that I think is doing good to the world shaping and changing the world. I think that's really uh, ultimate. So when I'm thinking about businesses and, and really going to that, it really just flows through. So I give you an example, right? So I, I, come, from, I come from a very humble family. Mm. Um, you know, my parents, you know, we stay in, in, in public HDB flats in, in Singapore. Actually, what happens was that um, at a very young age, my parents were divorced. And the reason mm. why was because my dad was a habitual gambler. I see. I see. So, my, so um, you know, we had... We had, uh, what do you call, uh, pig's head being in front of our door. We had, wow. we had paint splashed over our walls. Uh, my mom had to go through a lot to pay back all those gambling debts, right? So for me, for example, because gambling has actually kind of torn apart my family. So for example, when I look at it in companies, right? Any, com- any companies that is doing remotely gambling, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strict no-no for me mm, because right. I think ultimately, uh, yes, they might be making money, but they're making off money off something else, right? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking very fundamentally from, from that angle as well. So that's just one example for gambling. Like, and if I think about it, for example, like energy, right? Mm. If oil and, and, and energy companies, you know, they, yes, they are, they are you know, they're, they're giving us electricity and, and allowing us to travel, but in the long run, it's actually destroying a lot of, of the environment because mm. of, the, of, the, of the CO2 emissions, you know, creating plastics and plastics is just now, you know, it's, it's a massive problem, for example, in the environment, in the oceans. And these are companies that I don't invest because they can be there okay uh, making money, but they can't be there long-term. Right. And I'm thinking very, very long-term because when we're really investing, we're all long-term investors here, right? Um, 10, 20, 30 years. So I think about it, I think about vision, investing really from the angle and really focusing on companies uh, they are just doing, doing along that path. Great, great. Just just so context of the listeners, because some of them may not be familiar. You're referring to David Gardner of Motley Fool, right? Absolutely. Yes, yes David yes. Gardner. Yeah, 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 Motley Fool. Yeah. So what, what other things? So for, I think for those who still don't know what Motley Fool is. is. Yes. Uh, how will how you describe, describe yeah. Motley I'm, Fool? I'm a fervent subscriber. And, so. and what... Expand a little bit more about how, I wouldn't use the word idol, but certainly someone you look up to in the form of David Gardner, right, has impacted your investment journey. You explained briefly about how you should look at stocks that change the future. Maybe mm. share with us how else has he impacted you, plus what is more needful. Yeah, I mean, uh, let me go back into this, right? I think if it really has come back into into my investing journey. So I think when I, when I, started saying, okay, I was always interested in investing. And when I started reading all your typical books, you know, your, your Ben, your Ben Graham, your, your Warren Buffett. And I, I did a, actually a course in Singapore with AI investing. So it's a oh. value investing based course. Mm. Uh, that was kind of, you know, teaching value, value investing. Now, now after finishing the course, what happened very strikingly in that course, they gave an example of this company called Viacom. 
Viacom mm. is in Singapore is a car inspection company. Uh, in, in Singapore, it's actually a duopoly. So there's Viacom and another company that does it and they kind of both have 50% market share, right? By regulation, every year, your car have to go through an inspection. Right. And if you think about it, because of that, the revenues aren't going to go away. Be it recession or no recession, cars are going to be there, right? Mm. And if you're going to be doing it, you know, the revenues are going to be there. So they have great profit margins and it's a great stock. It's a great dividend stock. So he gives that as an example of, of great investment to hold and, you know, dividends, right? And I was looking at it okay, the Singapore car population is kind of flat. Mm-hmm. You know, you can probably increase your car, you know, the fees more or the revenues more. Right. Revenues are going to be flat. Yeah. If revenues are going to be flat and profits are likely going to be flat because profit, profit margins are already actually quite high, profits can't grow. If profits can't grow, the stock price actually can't grow, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be owning a company. Yes, I'm getting, you know, 4 or 5% dividends, but the stock price is going to be staying flat. And I was like, okay, something is tremendously wrong mm. here, right? I'm getting the math wrong, right? So I started doing more value investing, really trying to figure out. So obviously they say, buying great companies, you know, at 50 cents to the dollar and with, with a margin of safety, right? And some upside. So I was like, okay, great. I can buy top value, margin, value, value, value investing, great companies who are doing really well. Top line is like, you know, because typically when they're paying dividends, your top line is probably growing five, 10% right. low single digits. Yeah. And you know, the profit margins are already very high, right? These are solid companies, right? And then I'm looking, okay, these companies are great. But if the revenues again don't grow and if the profits are okay, and yes, okay, I'm buying 50 cents to the dollar. So if I'm thinking about it, my upside is, okay, I'm buying uh, maybe a 150 stock worth in future value, but for 50 cents, right? So I can make double. Yeah. But like, hmm, something's wrong here, <laughs> right? So I was like, okay, value investing maybe is a bit off. So that, that was actually when I, so I started Googling, you know, what are the best investors in the world and um, chance upon the Motley Fool. And I think David Garner really changed, changed my way of thinking about it is that I'm not buying 50 cent $1 coins, but I'm really buying $10 coins or $10 notes for 50 cents now. Mm. And that's how I'm really thinking about it. It's when you're holding multi-baggers and, and a lot of these multi-baggers can just offset all the losses combined that gives you that tremendous outperformance. And that really, that single phenomenon of just searching out there for the best investors and trying to change my whole investing framework just came from there naturally, just because of the math. Because the way I think about it, if your revenues of, you know, of, of the stocks or the companies go up, right? Mm-hmm. And if the company is massively improving profit margins and profits grow even faster than revenues, the stock price has only but to go up. Mm. And that's, that's just one natural way, right? Because stock price follow revenues, follow profits, follow cash flows. Mm, right. Naturally. So if you keep following it, even the valuation multiples might be expensive. It might come down over time, but you know, the stock price will go up. And that was a really big fundamental change in going back there. So when I found out, so the Motley Fool really is, uh, what we say, it's based in, out in the US, is, is globally available. Yeah. It's actually a stock selection service. So mm. it provides a stock selection service. They have two, two main basic service services called the Stock Advisor, where I think Tom and David uh, provide stock picks, monthly stock picks. They have, to, they have the rule breakers as well, uh, which I'm a big fan of. The only podcast that I, one only other podcast you know, uh, yeah. that I listen every week is the rule breakers podcast. I highly recommend. David, David Gunner is, is great. He's been great in shaping, uh, shaping a fair bit of my mentality great. Going, going to this. Yeah. Hey, um- I don't know whether it's popular in Singapore, but MJ and I always get this. Uh, I'm a growth investor compared to a value investor compared to a dividend investor. <laughs> what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that, is that, is that, are these phrases even meaningful to you? Yeah. 
if you think about it, I think all value in, I mean, all investing is value investing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm doing value investing. It's just the way I think about it. I think typical value investors, the way they think about it is right now, what is the, my present value of the stock, right? Versus the current stock price. Mm-hmm. I think about the future value of my stock versus the future price. Mm-hmm. So it's value investing from different time perspectives. One is the now, the other is the future. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, we're all doing value investing. It's just the, the way we think about it is different, right? Mm. And the way I think about it is, is really growth because if you think about it from any company in every company typically goes like an like S-curve uh-huh. where you really go right at the beginning part when they're just finding that niche being a top dog and when they suddenly, when the revenues just go crazily, immense, immensely higher, that's where the profit and the, mul- and the valuation multiples just skyrocket. Mm. And you really want to be in that sweet spot where you just go up and, and ride it all the way up, all the way up. I see. So I think that was just that, that big fundamental change. I see. So I, you use an interesting word just now, which is a multi-bagger. Mm. Yes. So obviously, I think the big question is, okay, first of all, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast don't want a multi-bagger. <laughs> Hmm. But the big challenge is, what is the process? And since you're an engineer, I'm very sure you have, you have a process. In fact, uh, I think on your Twitter feed, uh, the pin tweet actually explains your process in, uh, you know, 140 characters or less over about 10 tweets, something like that. Yes. Now, what is the process of finding a multi-bagger? I think it goes back to the investing. Right? So if I think about investing, it's really... Mat- mat- mathematics and, p- and probability. Mm. Right? So if you think about the investing world, there was there was a survey there was a survey being being done. So they look at it, they put about 24,000 24, stocks over the last uh, I think fifty or fifty or, or seventy years. It's or so. global global stocks. Is that global. Right? Uh, okay. glo- I think it was U.S. stocks actually. Okay. Okay. But when they did that study, right, they found out that fifty percent of the returns was accounted by about four percent of the companies. Wow. Right. And 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 uh, even sorry, so let me, let me correct it. Right, a hundred percent of the returns was more than hundred percent of the returns was actually accounted by fifty percent about a very small five four to five percent of companies, mm. and about fifty percent of the returns is accounted by an even smaller percentage about 05 percent of the companies. That wow. com- that number actually went down to a very small number of portfolio, basically almost up to if I remember, it's about one to two hundred companies. Wow. Now, if you think about it, we have a normal bell curve, right? Yeah. Very small part on the right-hand tail account of all that returns. So if you think about it as an investor, actually the majority of the companies, you know, yeah. probably, you probably won't be a winning stock. Yeah. When you think about it from a math, it's about math problem. Right? For me, yeah. it's about how do I find these companies on this very right tail, yeah. hold them for the longest time and, 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 and basically outperform the market. So I'm finding these companies and basically going there and really finding there. So when I started finding that route and, and finding the multi baggers, that's really what we did. So when it really go back in, in, into, into that whole, into the whole thing of, of basically finding, finding multi baggers and really just says, okay, I need to find companies, companies that are nonstop, uh, you know, compounding massively over the, over, over the years. Mm-hmm. And ultimately these are the ones that generate the return. And that kind of really just leads back in, in, into the whole investing philosophy of how investing. Great. I, I have a follow-up to that. Um, f- based on your method you, you said, right, about finding, it's richly flipping seashells on the, on, the, on the seashore, very big seashore, right? How often, uh, maybe just a ballpark figure, that hmm. you flip 10 and you don't even find one or you flip 10, you find one. Uh, that it, it's potentially a multi-bagger that's on that right side of that tail, you know? 
<laughs> what, what, what's your ratio like? Yeah, to, to give you an example, right? So, I mean, obviously last year was, was, a, was, a, very, was a very uh, abnormal year. Uh-huh. So, the, I actually own almost more than 80 stocks wow. in British okay. Capital. Okay. So, I'm, I'm not a concentrated investor. I don't hold, I don't believe in, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I don't hold more or less than five. I think someone needs to hold at least more than 20 to 25 stocks. Sure. I actually hold to 80 stocks, right? And then last year, more than 80% of my companies that I, that I invested in beat the market. Oh, wow. So there's 64 companies out of a more than 80 beat mm-hmm. the market, right? I mean, if you can think about it, is it a coincidence? Uh, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, it's, it's, up, it's, up, it's up to one to, to, to determine, but yeah. I would say the majority actually beat the market. And, and what happens is that, to give you an example, right? The single, um, the, the single stock that generated so much returns, actually, if I remember the number, was more than about 20 times all my losses of all my losers combined. Wow. One single stock, mm. right? And the single stock was almost, I think, a 15 bagger for me, basically. Mm, mm. Yeah. And of course, if I total up all the all the gains from all my stocks, right? They actually basically more than wipe out all the all the losses. Because the way you think about it, is again is back to mathematics. Yeah. The maximum a stock can always go down is minus 100%. Correct. Can it, can it really go down to minus 100%, right? Generally, I mean, unless the company really goes bankrupt. Most of the time, it's probably 50, 70%. Mm. Now, the math of finding a stock, when a stock can go up 100, 1x, 2x, 5x, 10x, that math alone. So if you get a lot of companies that grow up 5x, 10x, you know, 20x, 50x, and you have a maximum of just the minus 1x, mm. your average of all that actually beats the market. Mm. So it's, it's really a mathematical equation that, that I'm thinking about. If I can find enough multi-baggers, let the winners run, this business will basically more than offset all of my losers. And, and the way to think about it is that I think generally on, on average on any given year, I would expect, say, if I'm hoping, you know, sometimes it's about, I'd say between 50 to 70% of, of I'll expect my companies to, to, to kind of, or my investments to kind of beat the market mm-hmm. on, on an individual company level. Mm. But it really depends because, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, mm. next quarter, or even this year, right? Mm. But I think over the long run, I'm confident as, as I'm investing in businesses, just leads back that way. I see. So if I'm doing it that way, naturally the math would just gravitate and you just kind of outperform and beat the market. Right. Yeah. Just, I mean, more, maybe I angle it towards more the retail investor because mm-hmm. uh, would you agree with me that research, especially stock research, is always almost like a full-time job. It is a full-time job, right? And for the retail investor who does not have that kind of luxury of flipping those rocks, right? Mm-hmm. With your approach of many, many stocks, which is like 80 stocks, right? Uh, they would argue, why, why bother doing active investing but put my money into an ETF? What, what's your opinion? Or stash away. Yeah, stash like away. What, what, what would be your um, opinion towards that in a way? Because they said, why, why, why bother when this guy is so di- diversified? You know, I might mm. as well just go and buy an ETF, pay much mm. lower fees, right? And yet the odds of you know uh, generating returns, uh, obviously you you beat the market. But their argument will be from that point. What what would you say to that actually? Yeah, I, I think to, Warren Buffett has a very valid point because if you look at most um, most fund managers, the majority of the fund managers between eighty to ninety percent, you know, they can't beat the market. Mm. They can't beat the respective bench, benchmarks over the five ten years. It, mm. it is a proven fact. I mean, you can see the numbers. Many studies have have, have that right. So when when Warren Buffett basically had the point of you know investing in or, or John Burger basically having investing in, in ETFs, it made it made a lot of sense. You do an ETF, you have low costs, mm. 
rather than high cost, you know, mutual funds, that kind of erodes all the returns. So I think for the, for the average investor, it really makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But where, where I come from, I think, you know, for us, we are in a world where, we have, where there's technology. I think that's where we can actually help to change the world. Mm. And, and that's why it, go, it ties back into vision capital and vision investing, because ultimately you want, I want to be investing in companies that are really the future, mm. changing the world. Mm. And, and, and so basically you are actually voting with your own money. Mm. You're voting for the companies with your own money. You're actually, you're actually, you're part, part business shareholders in these businesses, right? And that, is so is so much better. You actually le- actually learn a lot more. I did, I did give you an example, right? When I first started in my very first year, mm. I probably only had five stocks back in 2017. Concentrated right? portfolio. Concentrated because I, you know, I, I made I made I made a, I made a point that wherever I finish, um, whenever I invest in a stock, I have to write uh, between a 40 to 80 page investment thesis. Oh, okay. So I, I wow. write that and I, and I know kind of know everything about my stock, right? So that, that helps me. So I, to give an example, right? When just now you say about time, when I first invested in my, and my, the first company that I actually invested was in Facebook. Mm. It took me almost, I record, almost close to one month. Wow. <laughs> Double weekends, every weekend was 12 hour days. Wow. Reading the 10K, the annual report from cover to cover, every single word, every single paragraph, understanding everything about the company. Mm. But the good thing is that once you do that from cover to cover, I think you remember it was like, I don't know, it's like two, 300, 400 pages. And after a while you realize, you know what to look for. Mm. You read the second one, right? My second one, one that I actually invested in was, was actually Alphabet mm. Google, right? right. Or, Google, or Google, right? And that, oh, the time actually got halved because I knew where, where to look for. Because mm. a lot of the, of the sections you actually don't need to read, right? And you started looking for, right? And then the next one was like Amazon. You and, said, and, and, you know what? You said, you said Alphabet, Google, my, my Android woke up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Yeah, so he went, he went to Amazon and then after that, the amount of time just got shortened and shortened. So actually what happens is that the time of which you spend looking at, at companies, right, actually becomes exponentially drops. Mm. So right, like for example, right now, I actually take on average between, I would say four hours to maybe 10, 15, 20 hours, mm-hmm. depending on the company and the complexity, you know, when, when I'm reading a company and doing, and doing my research. So it, 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 is, it is, I think it's it. I would say that it's really a lifelong journey because mm-hmm. to be investing, you're, you're really understanding a lot of how the world is moving and how the world is shifting and how the world is changing. And, and, that's, and that's great, right? Because you get to be happier, you get yeah. to be richer mm-hmm. and you get to be smarter. Mm. Yeah, right. which is, I mean, the morning food's motto as well. And, I, and I, I'm really, I think that's, that's a way to go. As, but- as, 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 as investors, we should be not just passive investors. Right. I, think, I think money money shouldn't be just passive, you know, I think money, we should be voting with our money. Mm-hmm. And I really think that the retail invest, the average retail investor has all it takes to beat the, the, the best fund managers in the world. Great. Right. And, and of course, that's why you wrote the book. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. 
you also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.firal.co slash courses slash SIB. Okay, so you know, thanks for sharing that that way of thinking about active versus passive investing. I think that's the first time mm. I, I heard of it. I yeah. mean, for us, we do active investing yep. somewhat similarly, like it's because it's just fun, right? Like, you know, it, it's a game for it's us. Not just, yeah, it's not just about <laughs> making money, right? Yeah. But, but okay, so now we've talked about passive versus active. So let's zoom into active a bit, right? Hmm. For most active investors, I think the big challenge, right? Even regardless of experience is to generate ideas, to discover potentials. So what is your process like for finding the next multi-bagger? Like how do you come into contact with them in the first place? Don't talk about assessing the management and all that first, right? How do you even discover these kind of opportunities? And this this actually was a very interesting thing. So when I think when I first started my my investing journey, what I did was, you know, I think the course that I attended told me screens, right? Okay, yeah. You should find revenues, you know, growing uh, profit margins, this minimum profit margins, PG, PB, yeah, you know, cash flow, price book. <laughs> ROE, ROE must be more than 15%. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? All those screens, right? And, and the funny thing was that when I actually did a, a global screen, I... I actually struggled to find companies to invest in Singapore. Mm, there were only yeah. and most really a handful that are companies that I thought could could do well, um, and and I and I really struggled, right? So and uh, then I started looking. Okay, is there anywhere else in Asia? And then I realized, oh, I also struggled. Mm. So actually, what happens was that I actually started shifting to to the US. And I think the Motley Fool is is a great resource because they have a lot of companies. But I think it's it's. It's very important because when you're looking at all these companies, right, you got to be really thinking, okay, trying to understand the business. What is the, what are they trying to do? What mm. is the problem they're trying to solve? Mm. What is the good thing that, that you know they're trying to deliver? Is the business model sustainable? Is it recurring? Is it growing? What is the market opportunity that that, that is really against mm-hmm. and really just coming up from there? Mm. I see. Yeah, I think really going going from there, I think that that really was just the big thing. So when I started finding, for example, my, my first on Facebook, right? Facebook was in the space of, of was it social media, right? Yeah. It's actually not a social media company, it's actually an advertising company. That's right. Correct. And if you think about it, we had the whole world of advertising because it was inefficient. It was yeah. inefficient because people didn't measure, couldn't advertisers couldn't measure the ROI. Mm. You couldn't know if I had spent this amount of money, how many people are was going to have click throughs how many people would I have reached and how many people would have clicked through to buy my product. Mm. But the, the Facebook actually changed it because I could now do an end-to-end. And I know if I spend $10, I can generate $100. I can spend, you know, I can generate $1,000. I know exactly how much ROI that, that, I was, that I'm going to get. And yeah. that fundamentally changed the world. And when I look at the total advertising market is here and, and Facebook and social media or advertising was only this small chunk I, that, that fundamentally changed my world. It's like, okay, it has been growing and I think it can continue to grow. And, and that's that's one way to think about it. So it actually fundamentally changed in the, in the sense, small versus big, what's the market opportunity? And yeah. that's, that's where I started thinking, oh, okay, I need to look for companies that are addressing big market opportunities. Okay, so you mentioned a very key word yeah. there, which hmm. is addressing market, but you didn't say the exact word. And <laughs> I know it is in your tweet, your tweet, um, uh, what do you call it? I don't even call it, your links. Yeah. Yep which is a total addressable market. And I know that's a very important uh, aspect or step in terms of your process for finding the next multi-bagger, right? Yes. So, 
So we actually run a course that also talks about total adjustable market, right? So we know exactly why it's important. But that's just our thoughts, right? Yes. So from your perspective, number one, why is total addressable market important? Number two, how do you actually go about finding it? Because I know having guided people to find total addressable market for various industries, it's not exactly an easy thing. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think total addressable market is important because to give it to give it to give in a context, right? I can be a great company having 80% market share under monopoly, right? But I'm doing a very niche product in a very niche market, mm. right? And if I'm already 80% monopoly, 80% market share, and the market, you know, is not growing, it's stagnant, you know, eventually what will happen? Revenues will be, will be flat. Yeah. If revenues will be flat, you know, right. cash flows, profits will be flat. Mm-hmm. If cash flows and profits will be flat, the stock price will either be straight or down mm. at some point in time. So that's one way to think about it. Now, if I have a company that's growing massively, gaining market share, delighting customers, customers are really happy, right? Delighting users. And, and they're addressing a very large market. So I'm thinking about small, addressing a very big. This right. can become so big. And you know, the good thing about, mark, about market opportunities is it doesn't happen in a day. Mm. It often takes years or decades to occur, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you look at, for example, just e-commerce alone, right? To get to... In the US, right, e-commerce is like what fourteen percent. It took us, what Amazon started what nineteen ninety seven or even right, way, yeah. way way before that, right? It's almost what 20, 20 plus years. Yes, twenty plus years. Twenty plus years to get us to fourteen percent, right? A fully grown adult. <laughs> yeah, you think it's fully grown? I don't think it's fully grown yeah. because I I I think you know I think I suspect anywhere we 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 will probably be doing like fifty to seventy percent of our retail spend is probably e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think it's such a long way to run, long runway to grow. Mm-hmm. And and that's and and I think that's a very different. So when I look at Tem, it's, it helps me to guide me to think how big the company can be, because we are looking for multi baggers here, right? Yeah. So if the bigger the company can potentially be, mm-hmm. the greater the opportunity. Yeah. Of course, you want a company to deliver and stuff. Now the question I think you had about how do I find Tem? Yeah. yeah. The the best resource is Google. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really right. You find Facebook. You find okay advertising search total. Advertising market, right? Mm, right. And you and you can't, it's not coming reports, right? They'll start coming, Gartner will publish, various industry will publish. I generally try to find like um, non-industry reports to give me a sense of what that term is. Mm. Uh, of the total or find, okay, for example, what's global advertising market, right? Mm. Of you know, in, in the whole entire world. And then I find, okay, what's the social media aspect of it? What is it versus display? What is it versus you know um, search? What is it versus print? What is it versus you know other other various forms? Yeah. And I look at what's the trend. Because trends are important because trends tell you the direction. Mm. It won't tell you exactly, you know, I, I'm not, I don't really care about the 0.1% or 0.2%. I care about a bigger trend. If the trend is right, so I'm, I'm looking really for tailwinds. Mm-hmm. Tailwinds are driving driving, driving the direction towards the, the large market opportunity and mm. that helps me to give me. So if, the, if I have a tailwind, right? Tailwind is here. The company is just going up here. Yeah. You know, it's just riding along, right? Mm. And the company can be performing even better than the tailwind and gaining market share. Wow, th- those are just the companies you just want to own. Great. All right, I can see your excitement. Do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Uh, with regards to the Googling part, right, because right, right. Uh, what MJ and I uh, sometimes struggle is that mm. while, while we can find this on Google, uh, mm. some of these numbers mm. are actually based on very expensive paid reports. 
I don't yes. know whether it's the it's the same for you. In a way, uh, it mm. is not free, publicly free and available. Do mm. you have uh, Do you have any resources that you pay or subscribe to to get you know this kind of insights? And the reason why I ask is in the wider context of the audience because we have we have uh, some of our students that say you know wow uh, getting financial data share investor they they can't even conjure up paying 50 ringgit for it <laughs> you know mm. what more to say more expensive industry. either because they cannot afford it or uh, because they are just kiam uh, lah they're it. very very kiam yeah kiam lah mm. you know, right? so in, in your in your space do you do you subscribe to uh, certain resources that you know you can't find publicly and then is it worth it for the retail mm. investor to actually adopt those methods yeah, actually, the short answer to it is no. Um, the the way the way actually another way I find um, TEMS or total addressable markets is really looking at the company's annual reports. Mm. One of the best ways actually, if the company is just starting public, typically is found in the S one or what we call the IPO IPO prospectus. prospectus. Yeah, mm. this US uh, US this is SEC terminology. SEC, right? SEC, right. SEC, okay. SEC filing, correct. SEC in the US, so you call it S one. Uh, of course, the specs now you have a different name for it. Yeah. Uh, in 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 Hong Kong, you have IPOs prospectus as well. The great thing about IPOs prospectus is typically what they will do is that they will, they will kind of find out the market opportunity. Mm. They they actually size up the market opportunity for you. They'll tell you this amount of users and this amount of people, and they typically they will, they will get an independent consultant to to find out those numbers. So I would say the annual reports and the 10K are generally just great resources because it helps to guide you, right? When a company is sizing the, the, the total addressable market, they will actually break it down. Okay, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this industry. How much is it growing prior? How much do we expect to grow in the next three to five years? Mm. Directionally, you are really getting it getting in there. Mm. So I think I usually actually use companies' with annual reports as a starting base because it helps to kind of get me a sense. I, I won't put it to maybe at 100%, right? Because obviously, sometimes the numbers can be overly optimistic. Yeah. I'm more, I'm more important, okay, is it a 5 billion temp? Or is it a hundred billion ten? Yeah. Right. Mm. I'm I'm looking at okay, then is the growth 20% growth or 2% growth? Mm. I'm thinking really more directionally, mm-hmm. more mag- magnitude rather than you know the, the absolute number. Understand. Because to me, 2% or 4%, there's no big difference. Yeah. Doesn't I move the needle. Think, it doesn't move a needle, right? But if there's a Kager of a compound annual growth rate of 20 to 25% or even 40%, that that is different. Mm. Right. So I, I think companies, company annual reports actually. Help, help, help a lot to you know to to just provide good good resources for us to just look at. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, uh, we we struggle in the Malaysian market because uh, we can't find mm. a lot of prospectus for yeah. any companies listed. Very uh, before two thousand and five, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's that's our problem. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you 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 you, I can see your excitement when you talk about Tam, right? So yeah. here's what we're excited about. Yeah, we're excited to know right now what what are your top five areas with the biggest and fastest growing time right now that you're looking at? If I if I look at it, there's a couple of ones. I mean, the first one I'll think about it really is electric vehicles. Oh, wow. oh, EV, okay. EVs, right? You know, I think if I look at it, why, why, are, why do we have electric vehicles? We have electric vehicles is because we have actually, all the countries in the world, governments have all agreed to lower carbon emissions. Mm. And, and if you think about it from the global carbon emissions pie, transport and, and transport actually accounts for, I would say, almost close to one third of it. Yeah. And, and, and there's certain things you can't, you, you can't, you can't remove global, global, global emissions, right? And, and transport being the easiest way because we are using oil. Oil generates um, petrol. Oil uh, you know, generates fumes and, and CO2 and stuff. So the biggest way is to change that 
part of that and you know and and, and make and make it make it renewable mm. now so what happens is that if you look at it right now there's two things we have what we call ice the in- internal combustion engine and then what you have called electric vehicles, right? And of course, electric vehicles depends on your electric source, right? In China right now, it could be more coal-based, but you know, in, in the US, it can be more, 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 more gas-based, mm. more LNG-based. Mm. Of course, you know, in different countries, it, it, it does vary. But I think in China, for example, they are actually reducing coal. So that, that trend, that direction actually is, is moving in the right direction. So it will be more renewable. China will be more renewable. It's a yep. matter of time. Okay. Now, the way to think about it is you have this, you have these two lines. This is the internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm. It's going to go down like an S curve. Okay. And you have actually electric vehicles going up in, in the S curve from that standpoint. Okay. So you have actually two curves crossing at, at some, at, so you actually have two, two curves crossing at some stage, right? Yeah. You actually go back. And in this case, what happens is that I can, I can, I would say, right, in the next 20 to 40 years, you probably will not see an internal combustion engine car in the future. Okay. Wow. The majority of our cars will actually be electric because every we have already we have, all the governments have already agreed. You can see every everyone is saying by twenty thirty, by twenty twenty five, or you know, for example, or, or by twenty thirty five, all like, all vehicles have to be electric. Mm. So the world is going electric. Mm. Now, if I'll, do, I'll do give you an example of that time, right? The annual, if I remember the annual amount, the total global stock of cars. It's, a hundred, it's, it's about 100 million, give or, give or so. Mm. Give or so, plus minus 10 million. Or yeah, so, right? yeah. so this is assume 100 million, right? And on average, a car lasts about 10 years. So if I, let me say, let's, let's do some market sizing or some time right now. Yeah. Right? So if you think about it, on average, a car is 10 years, you know, cost of a car. Let's make it simple, 30,000. Mm. That time is what, 3 trillion? Mm. Oh. Right? So on average, on average, you take 10 million, you time 30,000 is 3 trillion. Mm. So Tesla, for example, operates in a three trillion time. Mm. Tesla doesn't tell you that its time is three trillion, but the global automobile time is three trillion. Yep. And three trillion time is larger than any e-commerce time. Mm. And, and in the US, they are probably 80 or 90% market share of yep. all e They are right now taking a very large share in, in China. Yeah. You don't have to be there all, all around the world to take market share. Right? They just have to be in the largest markets in the US, in China, in Europe, in Japan, and some other markets. Yeah. Because the way you, way you always think about it is, you know, you just need to attack the 20% and you, you get an 80%, right? Yeah. You don't, right. I don't need to be in India. I don't need to be in Singapore because it is structurally very difficult. Yeah. But I have that. I have, I have my strength base in the US. I have my strength base in China and that's enough. So the way, the way I think about it is because the time is so big and because we just don't see it because it takes so long. Mm-hmm. So everyone buys a car, a car takes 10 years, right? Right. And you, you don't feel it. Mm. So you think, oh, in the short term, oh, Tesla's price is, is expensive. But you don't you don't realize that it's actually changing it's actually changing that and when and I think about it transport transport is changing because one it's actually going to be renewable mm-hmm. it's really going to be cleaner mm-hmm. and the good thing about EVs is that you really have to have autonomous mm. and the good thing about autonomous is it's actually safer mm. if you look at the number of accidents in autonomous right it's actually much safer than humans so in, in when you're driving a car accidents happen because we humans fall asleep or we you know we tend to do stupid things and we have accidents. Yeah. And if you think about it, if every car is autonomous, it follows the line. Yeah. You know, there'll be no accidents. The only accidents is when suddenly one, one gangster takes over the car and, and drive and suddenly all the other cars don't know how to react, right? And then you have an accident. <laughs> yeah. Or somebody hacks it on, or, or along those lines where you kind of watch it in movies. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and the b- even bigger thing about that is actually like robo-taxis, for example, for Tesla. Mm. So they actually, because, so Elon Musk actually said this, 
uh, to, 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 to Katie, Katie Wood of, of, of ARC during an interview. The number of, because Tesla has so many cars on the road already and they've been recording real life mouse. Yeah. The number of mouse they, they have actually recorded is 100x all of their, their competitors combined. Wow. And just imagine, Tesla has more cars on the road out there, right? Yeah. We most cars are still in the camp- campus, yeah. right? And so if you think about it, Tesla's mouse uh, is just exponentially up and the rest are just like that. No? Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes. So they have their machine learning. So and and is and because it's vision based versus lidar based, yeah. You, they just have this amazing advantage. Mm. And and when you have that, right? Autonomous is good. I think autonomous cars is is just going to be a future. Yeah. 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 And and that drives. So when, when you think about it, autonomous, so to give an example of, of just to add a bit of robot taxis, right? Yeah. When you have robot taxis, Tesla is looking at a one-third take rate. So it means, for example, of $100, Tesla takes $33. Mm. The technology has already been developed now. Correct? In the future, basically, we are old, basically what happens is that we are actually the taxi driver owner. We own the taxis. <laughs> yeah. We have an app. We, let, me, let me paint you a story, right? I have a Tesla, I have a Tesla car. Okay. In the morning, I, I go to work. The Tesla basically picks me up, you know, sends me to work. I can check my emails, clear my emails along, along that comes back home, comes back home, the car drives back home on its own, fetches the wife and the kids and sends them, sends them to school. And then after that, goes and be a robo-taxi for eight hours. Mm. Earning money. Mm. A car, this has fundamentally changed because a car is no longer a liability, a depreciation, a depreciating asset, but it's actually not a depreciating asset, but it's actually now a real asset generating cash flows. Mm. Wow. If you think about it, Elon Musk basically paints, paints it, right? The PV, the NPV of, of a Tesla is actually 250K. Mm. And and you only if it only costs thirty or fifty k, it makes no it, it makes no it makes no brainer for you to buy a Tesla. Why would you buy anything else? Okay, yeah. And when when you do that, that fundamentally changes, right? So when you do robo taxis, if thirty percent take rate, as the number of cars go up go up there, right? Their cash flows just skyrocket. Mm. That's that's the true potential. The true potential. What 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 they're trying trying to build is to build this base where you're all actually sponsoring their cars and buying their cars. <laughs> actually, right? What, you're, what? you're actually buying. You're actually sponsoring their, their infrastructure. Mm. Yeah, and that, that that is something that is something that you know we we don't see yet. But when it comes, it becomes so apparent, and you realize, oh my god, that you know, it becomes it, it becomes a, a fully autonomous robotics. Great. Actually, yeah. what I wanted to add was. Uh, Car park owners beware! You don't need car parks anymore. You don't need you don't need car parks. Yeah, because oh, uh, thank God, man. Yeah, because it's like uh, in major cities, based on the scenarios they describe, most families, especially when they have children, the wife will have a car, the husband will have a car, and the cars are actually not doing anything during the eight hours that they are either in the office or it's being shuttled around with the kids and all that. Uh. So wow, right? Exactly. I think you're yeah. spot on because yeah. what happens is that I think we end up having lesser cars. Yeah. And we don't need car parks. And in in urban, we actually don't need all the car parks. And we can actually have more buildings. We can have more greenery. Yeah. Uh, I think it, I think it will it will fundamentally change the, the urban landscape. I, I suspect in in the next twenty to forty years. So based on what you described, I I I, I can I make a safe assumption they are very very bullish on Tesla. I I, I let me put it this way. Right? I right. think we are going to move to electric. I mm-hmm. think Tesla has has a specific um, competitive advantages. It's, it is one of the the largest uh, positions in my portfolio, but it got there because you know of its of its own merit. Mm. Right, it's been a multi bagger for me just just because of its own own merit. I understand? But it, it was never it was never a it was a very difficult stock to hold. Mm. I, I own it since back twenty seventeen. Oh, 
and, and in 2017, 2018, you know, everyone was talking about Elon Musk. He was going through all of those, right? But, you know, when you, when you, that's, that's the thing about when, you, when you're investing in companies, you read books. Mm. So what changed me was when I was reading Elon Musk's biography. Yeah. And when you read his childhood, right? He actually had a, very, a bit of a tormented childhood in the sense that, you know, he was this kid from South Africa and uh, he was constantly bullied. But because you read that in his book, he had that grit, that determination to make something happen. This is the guy when he talks, when he says a number, right? It's, it's not a goal, no? it's, it's like a dream. He wants to make it happen. Mm. So when Elon Musk says something, right? It's not like say and and in a typical CEO in a company. Okay, I say this. Typically, I'm actually lowballing, but you know, most likely I'll outperform, <laughs> basically, right? But Elon Musk is really just aiming something very high, so high that's so difficult, and even just reaching just slightly below is just it's just out of the world. So that's the way I would think about how he thinks about numbers, and when he's he, I mean, if you look at if you think about the day one, right? He said this: I'll make a sports car, a very expensive car. People will buy. I'll make a slightly less expensive car. More people will buy. And then I'll make a more common car where everyone can buy. And then I'll have renewable and I'll have everything else. And he's, 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 he's been doing exactly what he said. He's, he has mm. never deviated, right? And mm. that's why if you think about it, has been over what? He's been around for what? More than 10, 10 15 yep. years already? Yeah. And people are still being skeptical. Right? I mean, when I was in the US, for example, just in San Francisco, just actually before COVID, and was, I was there in person. I think that was when the Model 3 rolled out. Mm. About four cars on the road were, was a Tesla. Mm. I was like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> and of course, I, I was, in, a, I was in Silicon Valley. I was doing a Silicon Valley tour and uh, I, was, I was doing a real life and, and someone was there just summoning the car out from the car park. He was there holding his iPhone, press, the Tesla came from the car park and came to him. <laughs> wow. And then we were on the road. He said, we're going to go into, auto, auto, we're going to go basically into, into auto drive. Okay. He said, Let's, we're going to turn it on. I'm going to be on my Google map. I, I press the screen of our next destination. Let go. It was hands off, legs off. And we're basically on the highway. Wow. And, and, and I could feel it. The good thing I could feel it because it was vision-based. Vision-based is very different from, from, from LiDAR. When you notice something, it gets there and you, you can sense. So for example, when a car was coming from the side, the car decided was like going out, but not going out. Mm. You could actually feel. So when you have vision, it actually ends up driving like a human. Mm. Yeah. So I was like, wow, there's, there's some intelligence behind it. Yeah. So when I actually felt it, it was like, wow, the future really is here. Yeah. It's just, it's not evenly distributed yet. Okay. What, why do you think adoption is slower here in somewhat? Is it because I, I of think, cost? I think it's cost. Cost is one. I think really infrastructure because if you had to have solar and have a charging station, you probably need to stay in a, in a, in a, in a house or in a landed property. Mm, mm. Not like stay in a flat or in a condominium. Mm. So I think in the US, a lot of people actually stay in houses. Mm -hmm. So when you have houses, I can basically have solar cells. I have batteries that charge the solar cells. Actually, what happens is that a lot of these have solar cells and they end up charging the battery. And what happens is that because they, they generate so much electricity, they actually contribute electricity back into the network. Mm, back so into the a grid. lot of the houses actually become mini power stations, mm. which is like, wow. I'm, I'm actually, instead of carbon negative, I'm, I'm, I'm carbon positive from, from the angle. I see. Yeah. So, so to me, it's like, it, it fundamentally changes the entire dynamics. Great. Great. All right, yeah. so I, I think you shared a lot about electric vehicles and I get the sense that you can go on and on that, uh, <laughs> about this. But we want, okay, what, what's another one? What's another industry that uh, has this sort of potential, at least close to it? Huge time. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I would have two, right? I think e-commerce and, and payments. Okay. Mm, okay. Payments, electronic payments in the sense, you think about it. Okay, I think let's go electronic payments. It's probably the easiest, right? Mm. We have the war on cash. 
cash is inefficient. You know, mm. we have notes. I think right now, if you think about it, I think about 15 to 20% of the entire world's payments is still being made using using hard, hard money, mm. right? I think all money should be paid digitally. Mm. Agree. Uh, and, it's, and it's just only, 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 you can only grow with that. Yeah. And of course, there are great companies along that that would, that would support that. I think like you have you know you have your credit card company companies that form the base. You have other you have a lot of of, of online payment companies like the with likes of um of uh, PayPal, you know Square, Adyen, all this that and all support all of this. I think so. It's really it's a war on cash, right? And then mm. the war on cash is making it easier, making it easier for us to all do it. Mm. Uh, and it's such a big ten because payments is another large ten that that just so massively big that runway for example for visa and mastercard is just like a toll booth stop mm. you know, it will just keep running around yeah, <laughs> yeah for growth. and of course the other one that you wanted to share was like probably e-commerce like i mentioned just now um you know when you look at china e-commerce is probably like 30 plus percent korea 20 plus percent rest of asia 10 10 ish percent mm. right I, I think the world is probably going to be i suspect it's probably going to be between 50 to 70 percent of oh. our spend is going to be on on, on true e-commerce mm-hmm. by <laughs> I don't know, 20, 10, 15, okay, 20, okay. 25 years. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I do. I I like to think about in in probabilities in sure, North sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, uh, e-payments and e-commerce. 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 Yes. So, of course, I think one of the big challenges where you mentioned these three areas that are hmm. growing a lot, and I think investors who are a little bit more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated, they'll at this point, right? Right. Okay. Time is great. Is growing. The future is bright, right? The future is here. The challenge then for active investors is, remember, you're not buying a TAM. You're mm. buying a stock, mm. right? Because even if the TAM is great, that doesn't mean that you can profit from it, right? I think Buffett uses the example a lot uh, in the past of, um, you know, ice or internal combustion engines, the cars, the helicopters, the planes, and then, of course, more recently, the internet. All four of these technologies was, for their time, revolutionary with big temps, right? Yes. Yet, if you would invest in most of these companies within these four big industries, you will have lost money, right? In mm. fact, he lost a lot of money. Still mm. continues to lose money for some reason in uh, airlines, right? Yeah. So, moving away from the temp discussion now, when it mm. comes to stock selection, how do you pick the men from the boys? Mm. I think you pointed out a really good question. It's a really good segue, segue into, into, the, into the next part, right? I think when you look at businesses, you really got to look at what is the business model? Mm. How, are they, how, are they make, how are they making money? And fundamentally, when understanding that really, I think that gives you, gives you a sense, right? When I, when I think about business, businesses, right? So I give an example, right? Now, there's one business I generally don't like to invest in, which is F&B businesses. Mm. Now, why, why F&B businesses, right? So you think about F&B businesses, when you, I typically have rent, I, I, I have to pay rent, I will have, I will have to have, you know, um, I will have to hire workers who is going to be there on a monthly cost or so. So there's going to be those costs. But if you think about it more importantly, right? For an F&B business to make money, typically the occupancy rate has to be between, I'll say 80 to 100%. Mm. Okay. And if 80 to 100%, they make this amount of profit. But if COVID hits, the profits go to zero. Mm. Now you think about it from, 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 a, from a risk to reward standpoint, right? Business is great. Everything is great. I made this amount of profit. There's yep. limited upside. But when something goes wrong, there's unlimited downside. Mm. 
I don't like to be investing in businesses that have unlimited downside and limited upside. Mm. So that's one way. So if I think about it, like airlines as well, right? Airlines have to be have to be have to be basically at 70 to 80 to 90% occupancy for you to generate this amount of profits. Mm. And if something happens, like now, they end up bleeding a lot of cash. Mm. Right. So, so that's how I kind of really think about the business model. And that, that, that helps me because I should be know FNB, I, I won't invest. Mm. Airlines, I won't invest. And a lot of a lot of companies and industries, I won't invest. Mm. And it, ha- it actually helps me to, and that is a way to just, you know, just eradicate, kind of eliminate a lot of the industries and, and specific companies. So I'm really looking at, okay, if the, I love companies that way, put it this way, right? When the revenue grows, the profits and the cash flows grow even faster. Mm. Ah. That, that, that is the magic nirvana of finding that great stock, you know, which truly will, will compound and, and outperform. Do you have an example okay. of, of yeah. yeah? Yeah, I mean, to give you an example, right? So let's look at Zoom, right? Mm. We're all, we all using Zoom right now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you look at Zoom, when it first started, when you look at its IPO numbers, right? It already had operating leverage. To, what, what does it mean by operating leverage, right? So operating leverage, Zoom has spent a lot of technology, a lot of money, mm-hmm. developing R&D, creating that platform. What, what, what is the real variable output or, or input that it requires suddenly? If I 10x the amount of users into the platform, the only true cost is the hosting cost. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. If your technology was truly scalable, all you need, all you truly need is your is 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 your hosting cost. Yeah. Correct. And that's why Zoom could could easily could easily scale so much. Mm. So you look at their, their their last last one year of earnings. Literally, when they when they ten x or I mean when they had so much growth in 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 their subscriber, right? Their revenue just went so much up higher. Their profits and cash flows just grew even faster than their revenues. Yeah. Right. right? And that's what happened to the stock price. Mm. The stock price happened because not because revenues grow, huh? mm. because profits and cash flows grew. Yeah. And, and, and that's an example, right? Where I say, if I throw suddenly that amount of, 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 of people into the platform and suddenly that amount of growth, those profits just fly through the roof. And, and that's one, that's one, that's those are the kind of businesses that I really, really love. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that, that's, that's one example I, I would. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so getting back to our uh, the discussion about how do you pick mm. the man from the boy. So, so you've mm. described how you would eliminate certain industries based on the upside downside equation the risk reward ratio so mm. I, maybe to be a bit more concrete in my question mm. what i would ask you is let's say uh e-payment systems or e-commerce mm. right we know mm. the time is growing in fact you don't even need to run any math you can just ask uh, my mom, who who runs a, a an FMB business, she knows exactly what uh, you're talking about without knowing the numbers in terms of e-commerce and e-payments. So my question is specific for companies operate or industries that have good time and is growing well. How do you separate within this already? You know they're good already, the company, but there, there are hundreds of companies in the space, mm-hmm. right? And even in the case of electric vehicles, right? Mm. Uh, nobody would say that there's going to be a cap on how, how many entrants into the market that yeah. there will be. How do you say, okay, Tesla's going to win or Square is going to win or Mercado Libre is going to win, whatever it is. How, yeah. how, how do you differentiate? Let's, let's look at an example, right? I think of, 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 of a platform. So I think two things, right? I like, I like businesses that are really, I would say, platforms or marketplaces. Mm-hmm. The good thing about businesses with platforms or marketplaces, it's you have a very powerful competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. And a powerful competitive advantage is network effects okay. and economies of scale. Mm-hmm. 
The, the good thing about network effects is when I have someone added, I have, I have one user and I have two users, that compounds. Yeah. Then the power of the network just keep, keeps compounding, right? So I, to give you an example, right, of Mercado Libre, when I have more sellers, yeah. more buyers will come. Yeah. If more, yeah. more, more buyers come, more sellers will come. The feedback loop. The feedback loop, right? You have a flywheel. And that's exactly what it is. And and when I, I like businesses who are really, who have that feedback loop, mm-hmm. I would call it that flywheel, the continuous flywheel that just keeps growing on, on its own uh, without. So when I look at businesses, right? Going back to, to that, right? Is the, is the, is, is the business fundamentally going to be very strong? Mm. And you, can, you, can get, you can get signs. So I can see our, our customers being delighted. Mm. Our customers using is, is our MAUs growing, right? which is monthly average users, right? Are, are people using, are people spending more? So I look at a lot of indicators of every single business to see, are the, are the customers liking it? Are, are, they, are, they, are, they, are they using it more uh, as a result? And then re- revenues is only but a, an effect, yeah. a consequence of that. Yes. Right? And that, that shows, right? And then after that, I'm looking at, again, next at the business model. How are they making money? Are they taking a cut, right? If, if for example, if on, 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 the, on the Mercado Libre platform, which is, which is Latin America's Amazon, or if you, if you yeah, can, if you yeah, can that yeah, thing, right? Yeah. If I have more, if the, the way we call it, like basically what we call GGMV, gross merchandise value, volume, mm. uh, value, the more people spend on the platform, if they take a fixed percentage cut, they, they make more profit. Mm. Right. And just imagine, they operate the same amount of fixed costs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. If the revenues go up, the, 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 the profits go up, you know, it, it's a no-brainer that the profit margins- Would this different. be where you uh, introduce the idea of scale? Is, is scale what you're describing exactly, here? Yeah. Exactly now, correct. So now when I think about it, then skills in, it comes in the skill and operating leverage where I know there's a particular fixed base and it skills it. So I'm really looking at business models and ultimately I'm trying to understand their cost structure. Mm. And the cost structure is so important because the cost structure actually tells me how much of it is variable, how much of it is fixed. Mm. And importantly, I'm always going back to see, okay, how sustainable or how what what is the the the, the mode of, of of that business? Can yes. it can it really does it really have that mode to continuously keep growing? Yeah. Um yeah. just to add on to a, mm. a question uh, to that point, uh, do you think uh management is important to to differentiate between the men and the boys? And here here I come from an angle mm. where I'm I'm a fervent the shareholder of MasterCard. Um mm. I've been holding it since 2014. Okay. And uh, now there's a change of guard because RJ just stepped down, right? But he's still, yeah. So from your experience and from your sampling, right? uh, Mm. Plus, let's just say both companies have, let's say A and B, company A and B, both have uh, potential of a big time, potential of scalability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in your experience, does management play a very key role in businesses of this this nature, this type actually? I think... You brought a really good point, yeah. because ultimately, when you're investing in in, in businesses, right, they yeah. all they all run by people. Yeah, all running by people, you're actually investing in people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can we can say that a company is really big, and the, the company is really big. You know, you know, um, the, the average incremental person will not will not move the company. Mm. Now, when I think about management, I think about it really about two things. Uh, when I look at companies that invest in, they really typically fall into two buckets. One, one, the first bucket is they're founder-led, okay. founder-owned, mm-hmm. and they tend to have large insider, insider ownerships, mm. typically with very high Glassdoor ratings. Mm. So I use Glassdoor as a platform to tell me whether uh, they, have, they have what we call CEO approval ratings. Mm. 
and then and typically also people will rate them so that number of stars i try to find at least 3.5 stars and above because typically i'll look for ceo approval ratings of i'll say 60 percent, 65 percent and higher okay which that employees enjoy working for the ceo mm. uh, enjoy working for, for for their management that helps me to give me a sense uh, management is so important. Also, I typically look for founder, let founder own. Mm. But of course, you know, for, like you said, right? Example. So it brings down to the second example, like for Mastercard. Yeah. These companies are around for so long, right? Yeah. And, this, and when Mastercard, it was not created from a founder-led company. Yes. Correct. Yes. It's created from banks. Correct. Now, if you think about it from the sense, they have professional management. So this is the, the other segue. I look for very strong professional management mm. with a very strong infrastructure of, of managers who are who are also you know managing the business very well, mm. and they have displayed history, right? They've displayed many years of constantly showing me that they have. Yeah, I think that's just really key. And, and one, 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 one tip that I usually look at when I look at, at founders and management, right? I love watching videos. I love watching YouTube videos. Mm. What I typically do is that, okay, if I face, for example, you know, um, one particular founder, right? So maybe I look at Toby Luke of, of Shopify. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll go into YouTube, I'll find Toby Luke Shopify, comma interview. Uh-huh. I like to look for interviews and I look for interviews where typically when the interviewer is asking the interview is really asking childhood questions ah. why why questions why do you do this why do you do that what what happened that kind of questions now when they answer those kind of questions it gives you insight into who that person is mm. why are they doing what they're doing and when you look at not just the way and the passion that comes through into the lens you hear their voice you hear the tonality of the voice you look at their their body language mm. right it says so much things and that helps you to also tell me, uh, you know, what, what is this founder like? Mm. And, and I don't do that over just one video. I typically watch two or three. Wow. Give me a sense whether is it consistent or not? Because sometimes, you know, you know, they can be really good, right? You can be trained. Yeah. And that really helps. So I, I find, I find that when you, you start noticing patterns, when someone says something, but somehow maybe when they ask a question, their, their answer changes slightly. Does not jive. Or does not jive. <laughs> yeah. You, sense, you can sense something. And then when you listen to another interview, that gets that gets again, you send something. So I'm mm. always looking for patterns, right? Investing is about really looking for patterns. I'm mm. looking for patterns for I I love people who have a lot of determination, a lot of grit. They wanted to do something. And that's ultimately what, what drives. So I'm always looking for that that special, I would say sweet spot or special secret sauce. Understand. You need to yeah. dis- differentiate the Adam Newman's, the what's the Toronto CEO's name? Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes against the <laughs> the, the real. Yeah, the, sometimes it's a it's a fine line, right? Like yeah, it's a very fine line. You know, they can they, they know the right words to use, right? Yeah. To, to right voice tonality. Invoke, yeah, <laughs> to invoke the the emotion among the investors. Yeah. So I, th- I you know, uh, you know, it's really an hour long, and uh, you know, uh, we can go on for a very long time, <laughs> and we do have a lot more questions yeah. actually, and so. You shared a little bit about management. I just want to add on to this, right? Because what's very interesting um, for a lot of people who are global investors is they always draw this distinction between uh, managers in the West and managers in the East. Yeah. And so the typical argument I say uh, that I hear is, oh, you know, in the West, there's, there's a lot more professionally run companies, whereas in Asia, certainly, definitely in Malaysia and Singapore, a lot of it is founder-led and the founders actually own a lot of it. This yeah. is true for Asia and it's family-run, right? That's the yeah. word they always use. Yeah. And they use that term a bit disparagingly because what they're trying to imply is that, uh, you know, that it, it, it's non-professional and these are just people who 
kind of like because they own so much, they can do whatever they want with the company. But what I'm hearing from you is that actually when you invest in the West, because that's where most of your investments are, you are actually looking for the characteristics that are more present in Asian companies, which is <laughs> founder-led, founder-led, <laughs> and high, <laughs> high uh, ownership, right? Insider ownership. So, yeah. yeah, I I guess my question is, isn't there a risk, right, to take the other side? Isn't there a risk that because it's owner-led, then they are likely to mess with minority minority shareholders? I think the way to think about it is. You know, the way, the way to mess typically with minority shareholders, you look at dilution. Mm. Uh, you know, if a company is constantly raising or selling stock to to get to raise for capital, mm-hmm. constantly burning, you know, burning um, you know, uh, profits and the profits margins for it's about not rising, constantly raising, raising, raising. I think that 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 fundamentally changes uh, the way I see things are. Mm-hmm. So I think dilu- I use dilution as a way versus share price. And of course, if the share price, the revenues are not growing as fast as what dilution is, mm. it's, it's a problem. So I, I'm okay with dilution. I'm okay with you know people selling stock, companies, companies selling stock to, to raise. If the, if the stock price rises faster than dilution, mm. I have no issues. Okay. Right? If the company is growing faster than that, I have, I have perfectly no issues. But, but I think really going back to that, fundamentally, I think management... It, it, it is not, it is really an art. Mm. I wouldn't say that, you know, it, it's, it's easy. I give, let me give an example, right? So one of my biggest losers was Wirecard. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. So I, I had Wirecard, but I was one of probably my 10th or my 15th investment. I can't recall. Okay. So when I bought Wirecard, it was probably 2018 or so, okay. or 2017 even. Um, you know, great payments company, right? Story, right? I, I So I finished my thesis and I, you know, that's an interesting thing when I wrote my thesis. I, I, I wrote, there were a lot of cross-company investments. Mm. So like, okay, something was there. Clearly it was a red flag, but I, at that point in time, I didn't have that um, the knowledge or that wisdom, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, find, to find that these are, these are red flags and you should flag it out, right? Yeah. So I just put it aside. So when the first FT report came about, that Wirecard basically was, you know, masquerading their, their revenues, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of circular payments and, that's where awesome. something was wrong. Mm. So what I did was actually I went to I went to the to the Wirecard, I went to all the subsidiaries, I went to find out all the companies, and I, and I looked at the financials, and they were they were a mess. Mm. And and with that immediately I exited the portfolio. Mm. Now what happens was that that was also at the time when I didn't actually watch the video of, Mark, of Marcus Braun. The, ah. the, 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 now what happens was that at that point I actually went to watch Marcus Braun CEO. So if you, you find you find Google Marcus Braun CEO interview, there was one interview where he was being interviewed on stage, like two person on stage sitting down, and his his posture of his hands was like that, and his his his, his face was too back up. Ah. Oh, interesting. Interesting, right? Yeah, very so interesting. The way he was talking was you know high up. And, and, and that was, wow, that was a big red flag, right? Uh, very aloof. Very aloof, right? You know, thinking I'm, I'm great, you know, and, and, and I'm ruling the world. And, and you know, it gives off that kind of impression. And I think when it had that, 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 fun, that, that made me realize that I, I, I needed to have that at that angle of, of just, um, you know, looking at, at companies, right? So I do get it wrong. Mm. And, and, and I, have, I've, I have gotten wrong. So that, that was obviously my biggest, um, I would say loser, where I probably was down uh, maybe 30 to 40%. Mm. I, when, I, when I found out, um, you know, that a lot of a lot of red flags, I immediately just sold off my position. Mm. And uh, of course, I think even it's now bankrupt, right? It was, it was down to zero. Okay. Wow. Yeah, so so it is, it is not easy. It is an art. 
Yeah. And and I think in investing, we have to have losers. Yes. You have to lose in order to win. Yep. Like I said, I, I'm perfectly fine having losers. Yeah. But I think more, most importantly, the way that I would think about it is always like this, right? You know, you, you buy excellence, you hold excellence, you act you add to excellence and you sell mediocrity. So when I mm. when I see companies like that straight away, you know, I, I sell it, right? And, and 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 so when I see, for example, okay, when one quarter, you know, the revenues are down, everything is something is off. I give it a second chance. Second quarter, if something is down, third quarter is down, you know, I probably just sell the stock. I see. So usually yeah. three quarters to probably uh, a year, would that be correct. a fair? Yeah, it, it probably be. So, I mean, I'll ask myself fundamentally, has the business changed? Mm. I, to give an example, right, of IT or the so-called the Netflix of China. Mm. That it was when I think when, when I invested in it, it was growing massively, mm. correct? Then subsequently, revenue started come off the cliff. Ah. And then suddenly the last quarter, the last few quarters, you know, if you're Netflix of China, your content is key. Yes. Right? Yes. You are using your content to, to attract people. Yep. And what happens is that they're selling the content. Oh uh, my gosh. That, that's, <laughs> that, that is a red flag, right? Because yeah. you're not generating enough revenues and you're selling your content, which is supposed to be key, right? That was like, okay, something is wrong. Mm. And when and structurally, I looked at it, okay, I, I think I helped for about a year plus the, the it was moving in the right direction, decelerating way too, way too quickly. And when they are selling content, that was the last straw. And that's why I exited my entire position. Right. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it's really fundamentally, I mean, you get it wrong, you get it right. But I think you try to get it more right more often. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit deeper now into exiting mm. positions, right? Mm. So I think yes. you mentioned two already. One is um, when the management starts to, their chin is a bit high. <laughs> right? So that's when you know it, right? Uh, and then the second one is about like some quantitative factors like revenue dropping and cash flow dropping and whatnot. So what are your criteria for selling? So typically I look for, I look at three reasons that I'm selling, right? So mm. if I put all the other personal factors of selling aside, typically I look for it. The first one is just better opportunities. Mm. Um, you know, if, if, if I think this company probably will, will create, would only generate say 10% returns on, on, on average over the long run. Mm. Uh, because my, my, where, where I look at vision capital and the way I do it is I look at a minimum 25% Kager mm. uh, threshold. Mm. So if I find that, the, the, this this investment is only likely going to return me a single digit, 5, 10, 15%. It's probably below that threshold. I see. Then I probably might, you know, probably reduce the allocation and, and move the allocation to a higher. I might not actually exit it fully, mm. but I might start paring down the allocation over time. I generally don't do that, but I've done that actually for the first time um, just last year. Okay. Quite painful, but, you know, I think I have to do it. Um, the other one that I have to do is really, I would say, declining fundamentals. When your revenue growth, when you first bought, right? Revenue growth was double, so 100% year on year. Mm. And then suddenly, within one year, it dropped to 20%, right? And then next quarter, it's become minus 5%. I mean, mm. something fundamentally is changing wrongly in the in the business. Mm. That is fun. So you ask yourself, is it fundamentally changing? Mm. Is it a one-off, right? Okay, COVID could be a one-off. Yeah. Airlines, you know, COVID could be a one-off. If it comes, goes back up, airlines will be fine. So I might not actually, if I if I actually own an airline, I might not do that because it was a one-off scenario. Yeah, right? yeah. But if I were to do something else different, you know, like if a business, for example, in the case of IT, then it was fundamentally different. Then, then that would lead me to say, okay, this is declining. I need to exit the position and I'll exit the position. Yeah. So this is one way of thinking. And the, and the, and the third one really is, I got it wrong. Mm. Wirecard, I, I got it wrong. Mm. Mm. Right. Mm. I got it wrong. So I... When I got it wrong, you just exit. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, just going back to the earlier point about uh, your portfolio sizing and you had, um, mm. if I'm not mistaken, 80. you said 80, 80, yeah. right? Yeah. Is mm. it all 
almost equally balanced or do you have uh, some clear conviction that means you put in a, a bigger allocation versus or do you, do you maybe you just describe your rule of your 80 yeah how do you diversify yeah. and construct your portfolio yeah so so the way i think about um portfolio construction is about i let it i let the winners compound and earn their place in the in the portfolio so like for example i think if i look at it the top 10 winners will probably be maybe 40% Right. Of okay. my portfolio. Okay. But because they were, they were 40% because they compounded on their own. Okay. But actually, I added the same amount. I bought, I used the same amount of money to invest back then that I'm investing now. So mm. the amount of the money that I'm investing actually is the same. It doesn't it didn't really change mm. back then and back now. So mm. it's just that they naturally compounded on, on their own on their own. I see. I see. So and when I think about so when I think about when I think about I don't when I think about allocation, right? I don't aim to say keep that same allocation of, of it. I let it just compound on its own and earn its, earn its position in, in the portfolio. I see. So they will there be a point or have you experienced a point where your compounders like became so concentrated that it became like uh, 20% or 30% of your portfolio? Yeah. So right now, I think the largest probably still hovering around 16%. One six, I think huh? it's a number that I pro- I probably am okay. Probably okay. I'm still okay. I think as David Gunner likes to say, there's a sleep score. Okay. So what, what's my sleep score? Right? I think if it's probably 25% and if it moves 10% every day of my portfolio, mm. that I might not be, I might not be, I might pile down okay. lower. So I would say, I don't have an exact number because I never come to that scenario. But I would say maybe 20, 25% would be a number that I probably might not be too comfortable with. Okay. But then right. again, it's a very interesting theoretical question right? because your winners are just growing so big. Yeah. And if you are actually powering down your number one winner to move to other lower winners, you're actually depressing your overall returns of your portfolio. Yeah. So you, I think you need to let it concentrate on its own, but also you just, you need to be cognizant of, of, of yeah. that thing. So you're actually powering down something that is probably returning higher for a reason. Mm. There's something that is lesser, lesser returns. Actually, Peter Lynch had a phrase for it. He says, it's like uh, killing your flowers and watering the weeds. Huh? Yes, ne- <laughs> never, never. You always, always water your flowers. Do not water your weeds. So I never add to my losers. Yeah. Uh, I always add to my winners. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. So, I mean, one of the one thing that struck me about having an 80 stock portfolio is that that is a bit of a trend bucking thing. When what I mean by that is hmm. most investors that have done extremely well, right? You're talking about the Buffets and the Mungers and the yeah. Greenblatt, how that they, they run concentrated portfolio, yeah. right? And if you ever ask them anything about concentrate uh the diversification, they say basically, you know, why put your money into your 20th best idea when you can put it in your fifth best idea. Mm. And I would say that most of the time when I look at, uh, you know, people or funds that have 80 stock stock portfolios, right? Uh, they don't do well, actually. Mm. Mm. And I think only Lynch. you, you, uh, yeah, you, Lynch. Phil Lynch, which had a thousand old stocks, but yeah. actually I never know whether it's split into many different yeah, funds. True. I, it's I, true. I can't yeah. remember. And I, I think we have a close friend, uh, Stanley, I think you know him as yeah, well, right? Stanley Valley, Asia. Yeah. I think only like three of you, you, you guys globally, quite frankly, it comes to mind when it comes. Oh, another one, AM, Aggregate Asset Management. Yeah, yeah, but even that, even them, they are having a tough time right now. Yeah. So I would say these three, three of you guys have done pretty well uh, bucking the trend. What do you think that is? What do you think that concentration is just not, not necessary? So the way I think about it is, um, if to to put it this way, right? Everyone has diff- has diff- has different different styles on investing. Right. You can be a five stock. Of, you can be a five stock investor. You still do well. You can be like 
totally look like Lynch, have yeah. thousands of stocks and can still do well. Yeah. Mm. I think the difference between Lynch and, and a concentrated portfolio looks like, is like this. Lynch can allow a, a, a stock to go 50, 50x and it doesn't need to sell. Mm. If you have a five stock portfolio and it's a stock 50x right away, you'll be constantly selling it. Oh yeah, yeah. to bar down. <laughs> you'll be constantly selling it. So I'll give you an example, right? Let's, let's, let's put some math, right? You have a five stock portfolio, one stock just became 5x. Yeah. Right, yeah. The stock has been, the stock has literally become become 19%. your largest portfolio, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, right. And you'll be like, oh my god, right? <laughs> and if one day the earnings is bad, it minus ten percent, you're down ten percent. Mm. Like you're talking, you're down eight percent because maybe it's a percentage of, of and stuff, right? Yeah. But I'm trying to say you're you're getting hit and you're forced to sell your biggest winner, mm. and you're paring out your next best idea. Now, mm. so it's a bit different. Yes, at the start you're investing in the top best five, but what happens is that mathematically you actually always end up selling your top idea and powering down. Mm. So you might be doing your best five ideas, but mathematically you're actually accelerating that mm. and actually reducing your overall returns slow, much more over time. Okay. Yeah. yeah so th th that is one way I, I think I think about it. I can I can let my stocks 5x, 10x, 20x, 50x, no problems because because of because of that. Yeah. And the way the way I think about it is Every stock in, my, in in the you know I mentioned just now right because the maximum a stock can go down is minus hundred percent yeah it right. can be a multi bagger so I think about every single stock is like a call option mm. now so when I have a portfolio that is eight, I have eighty call options when I when I when I sum up the payoff of eighty a stock of eighty call options right, it actually looks a very big triangle and a very small triangle of losses mm. so it actually it actually looks like a massive call option. It does not look like a, 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 a an ETF or a unit trust. And with no strike, so uh, with no strike price, right? Ex yeah. I mean, exactly, right? Yeah. Exactly. Perpet so that, perpetuity. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, long -term that's the way I, I like to think about portfolio allocation and right. construction fr from that standpoint. Mm. When you're constructing your portfolio to be massively long, a core option and, and a, a portfolio of core options, that, 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 that is how it works. Yeah. Right. Have you ever done shots before? Have you shot? Do you shot what no, do you shot? No, no. So we don't do any leverage, no options, no hedging. So boring. Why so boring? So you don't think it's necessary yeah. for things? I don't like think that. it's necessary. Right. I, I think um, I think everyone has their own niche, right? You can yeah, right, do right. and stuff. The way the way I think is why do I do I not do options? I mean, okay, let me put this way. Let me put covered calls and, and, and stuff aside, right? Now I can sell an option. So let's say, let's put it this way. I want to, if I want to, um, you know, for example, like I want, I want to profit from something, right? So if okay. I want to, I want, I can sell call options. Yeah. So for example, let's, let's say a price is $50. I want to sell, I want, I want to sell calls at say at $60, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the stock price, sorry, am I, am I getting it wrong? Okay. So let me, let me, let me change it this way, right? Okay. Because I don't do options so clearly. You can, yeah. <laughs> you can, okay. Don't worry, yeah, we so don't you, do. <laughs> okay. So you, you can sell, you can sell call options, right? So for example, right now, what happens is that when, when the price goes down, your core options get exercised mm. and you actually end up losing money. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is that if fundamentally you cannot market time in the, in the sense, right? So you ah. cannot say, for example, when stock prices come down, I cannot say I want to buy more stocks. Mm. I'm, I'm forced with a position that I now have unknowingly, I, I got a price. Yeah. I might be earning, I, I think about it as, again, back to the retail company, right? I'm trying to earn this small amount of money, but I have unlimited downside. Mm. Why do why do I want to do that? I, I I'm only I only my favorite payoffs are limited downside, limited upside. Mm. So if I'm selling any options or doing any covered variations, you know, it just makes my entire and entire payoff that way, right? Limited upside, unlimited downside. Yeah. 
And then structurally again, it just re- reduces my overall my overall returns. Mm. Yeah. So I, that's why I, I never tried to do that. I don't don't bother. I you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that your strategy reminds me a lot about is actually VC or angel investing. Right. And I know that uh, you are, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I know that you are into this space as well. So you want to share with us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yes, correct. So I think this really goes back um to my to my life mission. So my life mission is to to excite, to inspire, and to empower people to pursue their dreams mm. and to grow their businesses, to create long-term, sustainable, positive value mm-hmm. by making the world and mankind a better future. Mm. And when I think about it, really, vision capital is investing in the public space, mm. uh, really helping the world to invest better, teaching the people the world through my book, right, Vision Investing, to help people to invest better. Mm-hmm. But with that, when people invest in better companies, companies have to become better. Mm. That generates a, a flywheel of its own, right? And also help, helping people to become better investors. Now, when I when I wanted to move into angel and early stage investing with Vision Capital Ventures, it was really, I wanted to move into this space, ultimately to fulfill my life mission as well, mm. help back entrepreneurs, mm. to create businesses. And ultimately, you know, um, having having a position, you know, and driving startups, driving driving in, in the forefront of technology. I see. And ultimately, when all these startups become listed, they could join back my main portfolio, mm. my main fund, which is, you know, Vision Capital. And yeah. that creates a, a, a big flywheel mm-hmm. of the of, of things and the great thing about when you so you know when when we're when I'm investing this in, in this realm right we're really I'm already investing in the future mm. so I'm already investing you know in five ten years ahead right mm. of, of where the companies are mm. and the good thing about in angel and and, and and early stage investing you're investing even even way ahead of the time yep. so I'm investing in the next 10 and 20 years already I'm seeing things that are probably only going to come live in five years time or ten years time mm. right and that's very exciting because you're really at the forefront of technologies, seeing seeing tremendous things, you know, that people are not even talking about, not even reporting in TechCrunch, not even reporting in the news. You don't even see any of that. Uh, and, and they are slowly just changing the world. I understand. You're just curious and, you know, feel mm. free to not answer if you find this to be, uh, you know, you, you know, to be sensitive or anything. But what is the AUM right now for Vision Capital? Uh, I would say it's, uh, it's a seven-digit portfolio. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, it's been it's been growing. Okay. And, uh, and I do hope, uh, it, if you know, in investing, right? If you if you throw a Kager, so I I look at twenty five percent Kager. Yeah. Right. And that, and in thirty in thirty years, the number it ranges between two hundred million to one billion. Yes, wow. correct. Because yeah. it doubles every ten years. It yeah. doubles. It every adds year. a zero every ten years. Correct. Because it compounds. Yes. So if you think about it, like in, in Warren Buffett, right? Ninety five percent of his wealth, I think, is probably made after his sixtieth. Five or, or seventy of birthday, mm, right? And yeah. exactly the same thing. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm hoping it gets there because you know eventually I also want to set up something that's there's there's philosophy that I wanna I wanna wanna set up a you know a charitable uh fund that also drives mm. back and, and gives back also by education. Okay. So that that's what I'm hoping hoping to as well. So it's it's this entire um flywheel. I understand. Eugene, uh going mm. back to VC, right? Um mm. what advice would you give to retail investors that mm. have an itch to scratch when they want to go into VC investing? Do the same skill sets apply for public markets to VC? And if there is, uh, there's a difference, what would be the additional skills that you would advise uh, uh, investors to, go, yeah, to yeah. learn to go into VC investing actually? Or angel. Yeah. yeah. I, I think in public, in public investing, right? 
20% of the companies account for probably 80% of my returns. Okay. And in the, and in the early stage and, 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 and VC space, right? Probably like five or 10% of the companies mm-hmm. will account for 90% of your returns. Yeah. Right. You, when you talk about multi-baggers, these are like unicorns. Like you're looking at a really 100, 100, 200, 300 baggers. Mm-hmm. These are life-changing companies that were basically, you know, like like a lot of the VCs because they invest in Alibaba. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at SoftBank, for example, right? Yeah. Because they invest in Alibaba and, and, and the likes and stuff. And that's why they got them so big, yeah. right? So it, it's really that it's really that kind of payoffs. So those that, that payoffs just get skewed even more. Mm-hmm. First thing you got to be really understanding of that. So majority of the numbers they will say ninety percent of the startups actually fail. Mm. So I'm hoping that you know with my the way I, the way I'm choosing and selecting companies, mm. I don't get maybe ninety percent. I hope maybe I get sixty percent or fifty percent, <laughs> right? <laughs> and hopefully I, some of these companies they actually they can become 100x. Understand. So I'm looking for 100x exits, right? If I'm, the way I'm thinking about, about angel investing is that if I think a company can only be 5x or 10x and the market opportunity is not large enough, okay, then that is not good enough for me. I because see. if you think about it, if I have 10 investments, if it's only a 10x and if I lose nine, I'm going to be, I'm going to be flat. Understand. So you really have to be finding 100x opportunities because these 100x opportunities are the ones that are going to wipe up, they're, they're going to basically pull your portfolio forward across all your other losers. Understand. What are the sim- what are the traits that you've you so far from your sampling and your experience, right? Mm-hmm. That differentiates this five to ten percent of the companies that succeed? Is it management? Is it purely just the time? Are they in the right right place at the right time? Or what, what is it? I mean from your experience? The couple the couple of things so in angel and adventure is very different because in angel and, and venture, we're really, we're really, really investing in the people. Mm. Two founders can change the direction of the company mm. more than anything else. Because when you're investing in a very large company, you know, even the founders move or anything, right? It doesn't really change. They can hire someone, a new professional manager, and they can, whereas in the, in, in the very early stage seed or seed rounds, the founders drive everything and the founders are everything. Mm. So you really got to be, again, you know, investing in people. So you tend mm. to have a sense, okay, who are these people, right? What, how, how have they been? I tend to find calls, but the problem with, uh, with angels, angel investing and stuff, because some of these people are very young mm. or some of them could be also very old. They could, they could be doing startups and stuff. You might not have enough videos that is of them speaking, uh-huh. hearing. And that, that tends to be tougher. I see. But sometimes, but I think the world is nowadays because people are being more public. Yeah. That, that problem becomes less of a problem. And that's how you get, you get a sense. And ultimately, I'm finding founders, I'm finding the business. I'm looking again, similar, right? How I think about public. Is the business an opportunity that is growing massively? Mm-hmm. I, 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 are they truly disrupting something? Are they truly disrupting something? Okay. And, and, and getting, getting towards that direction. I see. So I'm releasing, I give, I give, let me give you an example, for example. Um, I invested in this company. I won't share the name. Okay. So it's, it's a startup. So what this startup basically is trying to do fertilizers as a service. But let me, let me, let wow. me try, let me try to explain F-A-A-S. it. Yeah, F-A-A-S. So what happens is that fertilizers are generally made via a very inefficient process called the Haber-Bosch process. Yep. Mm-hmm. Basically you make it via, think about it as a very large factory, a lot of electricity, mm. a lot of raw materials. Yes. You make it finish, once you make it in a big factory, you eventually have to transport it long distances to the farms. Yes. Right? What this, what this startup wants to do is basically have it in a box in the farm. Ah, so localize, localize. All you need is all you need: solar, water. Because what 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 is in fertilizers? Nitrogen-based fertilizers, right? Yes. All nitrogen, right? And we yes. have nitrogen. Majority of our air is nitrogen, right? Yep, yep. Through that, they create nitrogen-based fertilizers, mm. 
and then basically they dilute it by parts accordingly, put it in a farm. Mm. They are changing the world. Mm. And I hope they can change the world. Mm. Uh, so some of the, the founders are basically, you know, Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, they are Harvard. They have gotten grants from, from, from even Harvard, for example, to show that everybody's interested in the technology. They are right now in the farms. They're in three farms. They've actually, you know, take off all their shirts, shirts literally <laughs> and move into the farm somewhere just beside the farm. I see. They're 24 hours on this so that when it fails, they are there solving the problem and fixing it. Mm. They're trying to get it up right for three farms. If they get it right, I hope they do get it right. It will fundamentally change the world and, and make it better. How, how do so you, it, how, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's really, really how, right? Is, I mean, Vision Capital Ventures is nothing but an extension of, of Vision Capital. Really just finding companies, such companies that are just changing the, the world from, from that standpoint. Yeah. How, how do you, one, get into pitches like this? Two, mm-hmm. is that, do you find them locally within a region or it, is it mainly outside? Sad, sad but true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think in, in, in angel and in, in, in early stage investing, you, your deal flow is very important. Mm. Deal flow meaning you have to see the companies because you, you, only when you can see, then you can reject. Yeah. You can't see, you can't reject, right? Mm. So your deal flow, typically you have deal flow that, you know, p- people come to you on LinkedIn or they come to you via random and, you know, and they send you PowerPoint decks and, and, and you kind of look through and you, meet, and you meet them and you talk to them. Mm. That's one way, right? Your mm. own deal flow. The other, the other deal flows, you can have it via, you know, net, your net, networks. You have other people that, you know, other angel investors, they see this company, someone's reached out to them, they forward it to you as well. Mm. Uh, the other ones that we can use also are syndicates. I probably won't mention the names of the syndicates, okay. but you can use syndicates where, you know, people are syndicating a particular round. Uh, you can, you can have, have, have angel investings into those rounds and you can basically co- co-invest with other angels Understand. into a particular round where someone is, is syndicating those rounds. So they come, kind of, I would say broadly, three ways that you can, you can do it. Direct uh, or through, through your own, through other people's network mm. or then through syndicates. Understand. Uh, mm. Region-based? Region-based. I, I, I look at global. Um, I've been... Um, I've not be found. I've not found any, any Singapore startups, but though I'm actively in in that space, I see. Just look, looking to try to find anything. But so far, I think largely has been, I would say, US, Europe, okay, and even and even even in Asia, actually, in India, I got I have I have a couple of one or two startups in in India as well. I see. Okay. Yeah. So Europe, uh, largely Europe, Asia, US, and yeah, uh, India. Okay. 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 So you know you shared with us so much about your time in public markets and also you know, more private markets, right? So what would you say is, let's call it your top three biggest learnings, right? Because you've been investing for almost five years, which is a market cycle. And you will definitely come across very unique uh, lessons specific to you, or maybe not, right? So tell tell us, you know, what, what are the biggest lessons you've learned? Top three. I think one of the biggest lessons to learn is, you know, I think everyone can really outperform and beat the market. Mm. Inve- investing, I think about investing is is the direction, right? Every day, the stock price can go up or down. Mm. Price volatility, it's 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 a given. Yeah, it's the emission, it's the fee that we pay to to be invested. Yeah, keep focus and always be focused on the underlying business. Are the revenues growing? Are the profits growing? Are the, are the profit margins moving in the right direction? Are the cash flows growing, mm. right? Is the business gaining customers? Is the business delighting people, your customers? Are they delighting suppliers? Mm. Are they making the world better? When you do that, the business will grow. Mm. I can tell you, you know, we will, the stock, and the stock price will grow. Yeah. 
but I won't know how, how, how you know, when you come down, when you go up, right? I know directionally it will, it will be there. And so I think what I have learned, you know, is that when you start being invested for five years in the market, whenever you have a market downturn, right? like recently, you know, there has been a market downturn for a lot of the companies that I own as well. You know, you know because like you ask yourself, what fundamentally has changed last month versus this month, mm. right? My company is still doing well. It's been growing. It's been delighting yeah. customers. It's, okay, the stock price down 25%. Mm. Hmm. Great time to add some more? Yes. So it make, I think fundamentally, it makes me think that sell-offs sell, sell offs actually um, are great opportunities right? mm. to, to add because I'm, 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 think I'm being I'm very, a business-focused investor, not a price-based focused investor, not a technical right. investor. Mm. And I think that that is that is one 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 biggest learning for me, right? I mean, really, price volatility is something that is an is just something that you have to pay. Declines are, are normal, mm-hmm. are part and parcel about it about this. So I think mindset and psychology from this aspect is is so important and so important. And 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 to put it this way, right? One of the biggest things is also about this. Yeah. Why we choose long term investing is on any given day, a stock can go up. Or down fifty percent. Okay. Actually, the number is about fifty-one percent because stocks have a positive skew because stock prices go up yeah. over time. So right. actually, fifty-one percent of the time, you know, you actually probably make money, and forty-nine percent you actually lose money. Mm-hmm. But when you go up to ten years, this number, the probability of winning goes up to eighty percent, mm. seventy to eighty percent. When you go up to twenty years, the probability goes up to hundred percent. Mm. Okay. So if you're a long-term investor, right? There's a hundred percent chance you won't lose money. Mm. Wow. No, this fundamentally changes things. I'm playing, I'm playing not a game where it becomes random and a coin toss. I'm playing a game where I know the, the, the probabilities are stacked in my favor. Mm. So as you can see right from the whole entire session I'm trying to share, I'm stacking all the probabilities in my favor. Mm. And when I invested for 20 years, right, in great companies, 100% I won't lose money, you know. Mm. So actually now, I, that's why I told you I got downside, right? And now actually I got no downside. <laughs> yeah, man. As, as really long as you stretch it, as long as you stretch it, right? Yeah. I got, actually, I got no more downside anymore. So my downside actually is, not, is a call option with zero premium. <laughs> Just that you do, you, it's a 20-year call option. Yeah, it's yeah. not a one-year call option now already. Yeah. You never right? need to unwind your position. Never need to unwind, never, never need to unwind my long call option. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so if something is 100%, legit, <laughs> why do so many people not do it? <laughs> that, that, that goes back to the fundamental thing because... So, so there are many tricks, right? And one tip that, that, I, that I've done is this, right? I don't look at my stock portfolio or where the number is every day, every mm. minute or every hour. Mm. I look at it only twice. One, after the market closes, okay. which I know I cannot do anything. Okay. <laughs> uh. And then the only time, obviously, if I look at it, when I, when I, when I, when I am forced to look at it is when I'm buying stocks. So I typically buying, you know, in the more in, in night, night time, our time, which is early morning, the US time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even look at the number, right? Okay. I look at, I just want to go in and buy, buy the stocks and buy it at market. I don't care whatever price it is, I just want to go in. Okay. Yeah. So, so the way that we always think about it, don't need to loan, don't look at, don't keep looking at your portfolio number. It does not change anything. It makes you happy. What, so what if you up $500 up, $1,000 up? It really <laughs> doesn't change anything. Yeah. We need to be thinking about, okay, fundamentally, is my company going to be growing? Mm. If the revenues are growing, let me put it this way, right? If your revenues are growing 50%, right? The PE is trading at 30, mm. right? Next year, the PE is going to drop, no? Mm. Yeah. If it drops to, to 25, right? Your stock price is going to go up somewhere still. Yeah. So I think, I don't, I don't think about P, I don't think about, I don't, I don't do any Excel DCF mm. valuations. I just really think about, okay, what is the PE? 
and what I think the earnings growth is, mm. and I weigh it. So I give you an example, right? If a stock is growing, earnings 25%, I can tell you on average, assuming the PE is not 1,000. Okay. <laughs> right? The, the stock, on, av- the stock on, on average should grow between 15 to 25, to 30% CAGR on any given year. Right? Mm. Simply because, you know, stock, the stock market is basically made out of businesses and businesses yeah. are made out of real revenues and cash flows and profits. Yeah. So you mentioned PE, right? So what happens when there is no E? Yeah. What happens if there's no earning? When there's no earnings, I actually look at cash flows. Now, what happens is that there's a very interesting thing. So E is important because I look at losses. If a company can be making losses, but if their profit margins are moving directionally, I give you an example, right? Yeah. A lot of these companies, for example, because they're so scalable, for, for, let's give an example. One, one company, maybe their EBIT margin is minus 50%. You say, oh my God, they're losing so much money, right? Yeah. But what happens is that I tell you, the, the, the year after that 50%, the EBIT margin becomes minus 25%. Mm. Does it change now? Oh, yes. And then the following year now is minus 5%. Now, you've seen, now, now as an investor, right, you only have seen three data points minus 50, minus 25, and minus 5%. Now, I can tell you directionally, I know where, 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 where it's going to go. Yeah. So, what happens is that as an investor, you need to break it down. First, find out what's the gross profit margin. If the gross profit margin is high enough, I give you an example the gross profit margin is 80%. Mm. I have 80% to play with. Next, I find out what is my three, three expenses, right? R and D. I mean, typically, please, I don't, I don't want it to go down to zero. Yeah, <laughs> because if you go of course. To zero, yeah. not investing in your business, not growing. Your, your company will fail. So R and D should ideally be flat, or you know, ideally increasing, but not keep increasing. Yeah. Two things I like to look at is SG&A. We've got selling general, general, I mean, expenses. Yeah. And the other one is uh, what's my favorite? Sales and marketing expenses. Mm. As a company should grow, this as a percentage of revenue should decline. So I like to look at what's the percentage of this. Mm. If a company is truly scalable, right? You don't need to spend a same hundred dollars to attract one thousand customers. You should be able to spend one one same one hundred dollars to attract even more customers. Mm. And that's where your your selling and your SGNA and and your your S and M actually drops drops as a percentage of revenues. And that's where your EBIT margin grows, your EBITDA margin grows, your net income margin grows, and of course your your free cash flow and your and your OCF operating you know uh, cash flow activities just fly through the roof. Mm. No, that's how I look at it. And the best kind of companies, the good thing about it is when they're not profitable and when they're turning massively profitable, that's where the valuation multiples jump even more. Mm. That's where the stock price jumps even more. Mm. Yeah, so that's, I wouldn't say just because they're they're not profitable, I won't invest in them. I'll actually look at where their profit uh, margin trend has been. Okay. I look at where the long-term, where management think the long-term margin is. I look at I look at every quarter, right? Uh, let it, let the data tell me. Mm. Does it have scale? Does it have operating leverage? There's some companies that actually you realize they don't have operating leverage on no? Every every quarter, right? They only end up spending more and more sales and marketing. Oh, yeah. That that is a very that's a red flag. Because mm. if every quarter they keep spending sales enough sales and sales and marketing to have to keep the same revenue growth, right? Something is wrong. Mm. So I, that, that is a, a clear red flag from a business model to me. Understand. What yeah. do you think on share-based compensation, especially if a company is losing money at that point hmm. and using share-based compensation to attract talent? Because in a way, it's not direct cash, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think share-based comm goes back to dilution. Okay. I, I think share-based comm is, is a good way to, to keep employees because typically share-based comm, you have to have vesting periods. Yeah. Uh, you know, they need to be around for, for years. It, it is it's a good way to, to keep, to align the incentives, especially for, for early startups mm-hmm. uh, to, to, grow, to grow there. So I'm not against share-based comm, okay. but I'm against excessive share-based comm compensation. Okay. So again, I think it ultimately goes back to dilution, how much... Uh, you know, dilution goes down in terms of the share in terms of the share count. Okay, it goes back to it. Do, do you I have a ballpark figure on you know the rate or? I, I I really don't look at it. I mean, it really it really is what what the number is. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what MJ brought up a very interesting point about earnings, right? Mm. Now there's something very interesting about earnings. In the past, a lot of the companies were companies that were physical. Yeah. They had to spend factory equipment, brick and mortar, brick and mortar, right? Now when you spend this right, obviously you end up having depreciation, and they spent a lot, a lot having on the cash. Yeah. But slightly different now, actually over the last twenty or thirty years or so, for a lot of our technology companies, is that when you are spending in in all this R and D, right, R and D gets expensed right away. Yes. yes. You don't buy an asset, depreciate over time. Yeah. And your earnings actually looks quite good, right? Yeah. But what happens is that artificially, because you 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 actually you actually not even capitalize, right? All your R and D gets expensed. It looks your companies actually look artificially not profitable right now. Yeah, correct. When I, when I spend all this money developing my 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 IP and my and my infrastructure and my technology, later what happens? I actually spend end up spending lesser. Yeah, and that's where the profit margins actually go up a lot. Yeah. So when you talk about E, right, it's actually it's actually very nuanced in a sense because I talk, I would think about as physical physical assets versus intangible assets. Yeah, and intangible assets are all now actually being expensed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's physical expense, whereas physical assets in the past were actually all being depreciated. Mm. So actually, I, I look at actually I look actually look at cash flows now more because cash flows actually are a much much more better indicator. Yeah. Versus that. Yeah. Yeah. Versus earnings, so I find cash flows uh, numbers to, to be of a better better quality. Yeah. Actually, the the statement that you made just just uh, invoked my memory on the S and P or oh, the top, I think the top market cap company uh in the US about. 10 years ago or was mm. it 15 was Exxon yep. and today it is uh, so I think you wrote a very interesting article called The Rise of Intangibles or something it was a very good read I think uh, yep. we, I'll see if we can find a link and I'll put it into the, the show notes but I think key, key to what uh, I got from you uh, from that article was that the data points of the changing trends in how businesses are conducted today and the changing trends in which expenses are actually recognised because Accounting standards have not actually kept up with the times. I, I, I don't know whether you agree with me with that statement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the struggle is that a lot of people or the valuations uh, are, are based on a lot of these old accounting standards. And I think the struggle for most people to do valuations or understand valuations today is really to declutter all these old accounting standards and to really be a business-centric, uh, understanding the business-centricity of this. Uh, because who would have guessed, I mean, 15 years ago, Exxon would ha- actually have a downfall today, actually. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on. No? I right. think accounting accounting standards have, have, I would say, lagged and, and not, not caught up in a sense. Yeah. And that's why I think as investors, right, we need to be not just looking, we need to be as, as you know, as, as Charlie Munger says, having a, let, a lattice framework of, of understanding the world, mm. right? When I look at accounting, accounting helps, helps, helps impact us as investors because if they impact the quality of the earnings, it impacts us because we are looking at the earnings and, and, to, and to see it grow. So because we know it artificially depresses earnings, companies are actually artificially, you know, 
not earning a lot of money, mm. but some, but you, I'm sure you have seen a lot of companies actually are not earning a lot of money, but somehow their cash flow margins are, they're free cash flow positive. Yeah. We should be asking ourselves the question, why are they actually free cash flow positive? Yeah. When they're not earning money, right? Because all this actually, they are just expensive, just expensing. Yeah. Right. Great. And that, that fundamentally changed a lot of the framework. So when we look at from a PE, these are actually PE very high, mm. but when a lot of these profits just jump through the roof, the PE just goes, goes straight down. Yeah. And what happens is that because a lot of the companies, they're just premium based companies, they're just top companies, mm. they actually still stay very expensive and they yeah. trade expensive. When mm. they trade expensive or on a premium basis, right? The share prices just go through, go straight through the roof. I understand. Yeah. So I think that's really one way to, one way to think yeah. about it. And, and us, us as investors, really just need to be cognizant of, you know, many different angles and different aspects about, 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 about the world and its, and its implications for us. Yeah, great. MJ. All right. So, wow. Uh, coming up to two hours, we still have a couple <laughs> of questions actually. Uh, actually, we have, we have more. more la, and, you know, yeah. I hope once, you know, COVID's over, definitely we will like Wait, waiting you Waiting for you to bring us around and uh, yeah, save us Singapore um, food, okay? Yeah, just uh, bring us to <laughs> discover the second best food in uh, ASEAN. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and, and anyway, I just want to get, now we talk very deep into things like accounting, things like hmm. financials, time and all that. Let's take a big step back. Um, where do you see the market, right? Last year was a fantastic year, obviously. Um, I think everyone who, I think if you bought just about any stock that was intact, right, you, you would be a genius, right? You look like a genius. And so how about this year, right? Where do you think right now with COVID somewhat subsiding, with vaccination, with um, what? some might think to be one of the longest bull market uh, ever in mm. history. Plus the fact that tech seems to be, seems to not be able to go down at all. Yeah. Stimulus, whatever. Okay, Biden. Where do, you, where do you see the market this year, 2021? The market basically goes up 7 to 9% on average over the very long run. Mm. Right. I, the, the, the short answer is, I have no idea. The, the way the way I would think about it is a lot of the companies actually have have I would say have gotten a COVID bump mm-hmm. because COVID has accelerated that. Mm. So a lot of them have, has had a massive tailwind of of revenue growth put forward. Yeah. Now the question I guess because of that they will have very high base effects mm-hmm. year on year comp, 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 comps. So from a year to year comps perspective, you know the good it's gonna be challenging. Yeah. Now the question is, uh, I suspect it's probably the next couple of quarters is probably going to be challenging on a year to year on year basis. Okay. And the question is, after this comes stabilized, right? The following year on year basis, they'll be back to their own normal, right? Mm. If a company was growing thirty percent, but because of COVID, they jump hundred percent, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. my year on year comes for the next couple of quarters is going to be challenging. And market might think, oh, these companies are slowing down, but actually no. I mean, maybe the, the revenue number is actually higher than the previous quarter, right? Yeah. And, that, and, and that is absolutely perfectly fine. Yeah. Right. But the way I think about it is because the market just looks at just kind of year-on-year numbers because of base effects, they, you know, they just temporarily might shift back to you know, value-based investing or, or some sort of value stocks that so far has been, has been doing, which I, think, which I think is perfectly fine. Mm. You know? But there was always recommendations to do all that. I think I, I have no issues because my companies are still growing. When you're, you're still growing earnings 20 to 30% year-on-year. Mm. Right, over the long run I have no worries mm. Mm. I'm not looking at the next quarter or the next I, I might I might underperform the next quarter one two quarters but I know over the long run I I, I, I will do fine and so I think ultimately it's being just 
having that staying invested don't change don't try to change around you know be comfortable what, what you are investing you're investing in businesses you're not trying to time the market you're not trying to right. time the price you know you're not you're not a price investor you're not a technical investor right. really just yeah. keep focusing on that and, and invest in that so i think you know i can tell you the market will probably be up more than it's down yeah. but i have no idea where, where it's probably going to be great so staying on the macro discussion, right? Um, I think one thing that a lot of people have concern right now uh, is uh, excess liquidity. Mm. Right? A lot of people are saying, uh, and I always like to say they're a bit the saltier investors, right? Uh, who <laughs> didn't invest in 2020 and they're saying these tech companies have no assets and you know they're phony business model, whatever it is. And so, and, and they, they say the only reason why these tech stocks has gone up is because you know, the Fed is essentially printing money and that's why you can support liquidity. Every time there's like a little bit of uh, a little bit of gyrations and then, you know, Jerome Powell will start to buy, uh, <laughs> buy assets and treasuries yeah. and, and whatever, right? Uh, and globally as well. So what do you think of this phenomenon? Because this is quite, this is probably the first time in history probably where we have so much uh, cheap money helicopter money or whatever uh, in the market. And that is creating all sorts of distortions, right? The word they use is distortions, is artificial and all that. And all of this has to come to an end. So what do you say to these uh, doom, doomsayers, doomsday <laughs> opponents, you know? Yeah, I think if you think about it, right? 10 years ago, Amazon was overvalued. Oh yeah. Five years ago, Amazon was overvalued. Today, Amazon is still overvalued. Uh. I mean, the, the, <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't changed, right? Yeah. Correct. So, I mean, the, the mindset of the market hasn't changed. Ultimately, we need to be really against, again, you know, being a business-focused investor. Mm -hmm. right. um, and ultimately, asking ourselves, right, what is the companies doing? Why are they growing their revenues, right? Mm -hmm. Are they growing their revenue just because the Fed is printing more money and buying the stock? Mm. I think if you look at the Fed printing money, they're actually buying bonds. Yeah. Now, they're buying bonds, they're buying these bonds from people who are owning bonds. And if people are owning bonds, you think they will buy stocks? <laughs> they'll probably be owning less risky. I mean, they'll probably move up the bond credit curve. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's, a, there's actually a, that significant a shift towards, towards, towards buying, buying equity. So you look at equity inflows versus bonds, it's, it's, actually, it's actually a very different, different, different picture. Un uncorrelated, would you say that? I would say it's uncorrelated, but I'm, I'm saying it's, it's an extremely different picture. You don't, we can't say, just say, for example, the Fed has pumped this amount of money and this amount of money has en went entirely into the stock market. Mm. I, think, I think a more discerning investor needs to really fine tune and find exactly the numbers, right? You can say, I, I do have an example, right? Biden recently, you know, the Biden administration recently had, had, had money, you know, given money to the, to, 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 to the, to the US guy. And if I remember, it was about $700. Yeah. Like person, something like that. Yes, yes. Now, if you're giving money to a person who can't even afford the next meal, would they be buying stocks? Yeah. Hey, right. Well, you, you, you just never know. <laughs> GameStop. So my question is, yes, I would never know. The younger guys might probably do it. But I'm trying to say, we need to read beyond the number, right? Yeah. Is 2 trillion really going to the stock market? No. 2 trillion, there's, there's infrastructure. There's a lot of things. Yeah. And actually, the entire payout of the entire two trillion was actually a very small percent percentage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, we need to really look in the context and look beyond the headlines, uh, the media headlines that are given to us mm. and over, -sens over sensationalize uh, these headlines and look be and really go into the fine print and, and dig into it. And once you dig into it, you actually realize um, it's, it's, it's actually not what it seems yeah. to be. <laughs>
A- actually, I, I just I know uh, there was two only two questions left. Uh, I just, just another one just popped up. <laughs> my, um, I think what we have talked a lot about uh, in this podcast is about your investment strategy and how to look at investments. A lot of our listeners, one of the big challenges is yeah, they find all this stimulating. It's great, you know, great information, but they struggle right to actually, in terms of the personal finance space. Yeah. Right. Um. I know this is not necessarily your specialty, but certainly to be where you are, you need to be decent with money, right? Mm. And so what you say, right, is the most important thing for someone starting out, let's say, or someone who has very little in their bank account, yeah. where they, they listen to what you say about vision capital. It's like, wow, so amazing. And I want to be like vision capital. I understand the skills that uh, I need in terms of investing. I read the books. I, I, you know, I listen to this podcast or whatever. But I just don't have that amount of seed capital or that first big savings to really make a dent in in their financial universe, right? So what are your personal finance tips for people like that? I, I like I like fun I, I think it's a great question that you're asking. I think when it goes back down to this, it really goes back down to the fundamental truths of financial freedom. And in financial freedom, the fundamental truth is really one earn more, make more money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spend less, <laughs> save more, invest more, invest well, and mm. keep repeating. Mm-hmm. It's it's really that simple. Mm. Now, let me let me elaborate more, right? Now, if you have a job, you know, work at your job, earn more money, right? Mm. And if you are spending, save, be disciplined. Mm. Don't don't spend everything. Yeah, save it. Right, but of course, you know, don't save everything and not, uh, not, not, it's not every day. Just stay at home and be, be, be yeah, unhappy. Yeah, right? we, yeah. Exactly, we have to be a balance because ultimately we are running a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Safe, because that ultimately these two things will just lead to savings. Yeah. Right. Now, spend the time. You know, read, in, in, invest properly. Spend the time, and and eventually you get to learn. When yeah. you invest well, the whole thing just keeps repeating. Mm. And it's just really just down to those, those fun, 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 uh, fundamental truths, mm-hmm. and it, and and it really is. I mean, I mean, I wrote I wrote my book, um, Vision Investing. It's really meant to be for the average investor mm-hmm. wanting to invest because it really just runs through the entire math mm-hmm. of why investing becomes a game, mm-hmm. and a game that is if you do it right is rigged in your favor. Mm-hmm. You can then you can keep outperforming. You can beat, keep beating. So if you invest in those right right directions, I'm always skewing the probability in the right direction, and you can just keep doing well. So that's really I would say this flywheel, right? Just keep repeating this, and just keep doing this. Ultimately, read, invest. Don't don't look at the stocks all, all, all day long. Okay. <laughs> you don't actually don't need to, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 just keep doing this. Yeah, right. this is this is probably I guess the the, the bigger the biggest tips that I have for for anyone. Yeah, I I just have one question on uh his uh spotting live and then, then yeah sure yeah. yeah no I, I actually have a little bit of follow up question maybe you ask that question right after oh, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, linked, is linked yeah, to yeah, the question please, right yeah, okay yeah. so so I think you talk about investing and actually the the last question was actually about your book so you've already shared it so you answered it great 
uh, can cut short this podcast a little bit uh, by two <laughs> percent. Yeah. So 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 actually, you talk about uh, earning money and saving more. Now, don't go super that de- in depth. I know you you like to give examples. Just give one right now, okay? <laughs> but basically, in terms of earning money, so you come from a corporate background, right? So obviously, I think you'll be best qualified to answer, right? In terms of a corporate setting, what is what is your top tip to earn more? And then for saving money, what is your top tip? I, I think to, to earn more, ultimately, you always have to be delivering value. Because I think mon- money is an important way because money is a way that that basically measures the amount of value that you give. Mm-hmm. I, like think about, time, yeah. I think about money as the as that way, right? And, and if I'm paying someone, I'm paying someone because they have delivered value to me. Mm. Now, when you have delivered more value, naturally, you get paid. Mm-hmm. It's only a matter of time. Someone mm-hmm. will recognize you, someone will, get, will pay you, right? So I think that, 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 is, that is important. You know, um, balance that. Don't don't work all the way. Yeah, right? <laughs> you can make all the money, but if you don't have a money, you don't have any time to do anything else. You know, that's gonna hurt you, hurt you as well. Mm. I think you know, you find that balance, find that sweet spot uh, that that you have that ultimately balance balances up. I would say you know, lead 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 a lead a fruitful life. Experiences are important, right? I I material things are not. Right, you don't need to. You don't need to have. Um, you don't need to show off your wealth. Like I, I think Morgan Hauser gave an example, right? Yeah. Though a, a person who drives a Ferrari, I actually think that a person is half a million poorer than me. <laughs> wow, good you, example. You heard that, you Honda Civic drivers, <laughs> or your Miami drivers? Yeah, you're hundred twenty thousand poorer than me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, exactly right. Because why do I need to buy something when when all I need is just to get from from one place to another? Yeah. Yeah, right. but you're Singaporean, ma. <laughs> nah, just kidding. Yeah, yeah, but good point, good point. Yeah, yeah. point. yeah, correct. I mean, so if you think about it from that standpoint, you really, why do, why do you need to spend something just to impress someone? Mm-hmm. You really don't need to impress anyone. Yeah. Is that your biggest or saving you, tip? Or, yeah, it's, it's, my, it's really my biggest saving tip. I, yeah. I very few um, material things because there is really not much, not much for a need to. Yeah. And th- yeah, you just live life simple. Uh, I'm, I'm, bet, I'm better off, you know, investing in people, yeah. investing in companies, and 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 that makes me happy. Okay, so I'm using my capital to shift, to spear the to spear the world in the future. That, that's great. Solid. Okay, water polo. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you read my mind, MJ. <laughs> Did your sporting or athletic background in somewhat help you to invest better? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think sporting. A team sport, especially. So water polo is a team sport of 13 players. We play in a pool. It's a bit like, think about it like soccer, but you play with your hands okay. and you try to try to score score goals, basically. The team players aside, is it? The team players aside. Wow, seven, okay. seven playing at any one point of time per, per side. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So yeah, 14, 14 people in a pool at any one exactly. point. Yes, right, right. Then you got six subs, basically. Six subs, correct. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I've been playing, the thing about water polo was, water, I think sports teaches you grit, Teaches you determination. Teaches you hard work. Mm. Because when I was playing water polo, I was having trainings about eleven times a week. <laughs> what? Every Twice morning, a day. every, every yeah. weekday morning, every weekday night, every Saturday morning. Mm. Yeah, to have that kind of um, grit and determination and focus is of a different level. Mm. So I think when, so what what sport really teaches me is that when you really focus very hard on it. You you can become actually become great. So to give an example, right? Just to to give an example as as part of the closing. So when I was I was one of the oldest players actually to make the Singapore 
Sea uh, Games water polo team. Mm. This was back in 20, uh, if I was 20, 207 Sea Games. Mm. I, I made a conscious effort to say that at the end of every game, I needed to reflect upon what I did better and to keep reflecting and keep, keep visualizing. Okay. And when I actually did that, I had immense, tremendous growth. Because mm. I realized you become start becoming better and better. Oh, I okay. What I what did I change during that training? I could have done this better. I could have changed this better. Let me tweak it, and I keep visualizing this five, ten times, five, ten times, twenty times, fifty times. Mm, mm. And the next time when the ball comes, exactly, I know where exactly to pass the ball mm. because I have replayed this fifty times already in my head mm. the night before. Mm, 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 mm. And I know exactly when this thing happened again. I I'm gonna have it. So what happens is that I've actually conditioned my mind, and I keep reflecting on all my more my mistakes, and actually pushed it all out. Mm. So when I did that, that was a learning journey because I realized when you keep learning, you keep improving, you keep trying to, and keep reflecting, you actually end up becoming better. Mm. I think that as a sport itself, you know, I think that just a commitment. Yeah. So I spend, I, like for example, so every day I wake up at 4.30. <laughs> <laughs> I spend uh, you know, three, four hours of my, of my day, the first part of the day, just looking at investing, looking at companies, reading, reading, and doing a start, start my day really early. Mm-hmm. I buy by 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 my own choice. Right. I could be I could wake up at 7 38 o'clock, but no, I want to wake up early because I have more time yeah. to, to, to do more things outside of my 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 other stuff. Great. Great. Yeah. Um more questions. No, I'm I think uh, you know I, ob- obviously if you want to ask we can go on no, all night long, right? We can, but, but yeah, but he's he needs yeah. to wake up at 4 30, okay? So yeah. well uh Eugene it, it, really has been an absolute pleasure a pleasure uh, and this will be up there in terms of one of the longest definitely and it's not just about being long it's also about the insights yeah. that you get right because yeah. you know one of the targets of this podcast is to unearth this sort of you know hidden you know people investors who who have done well but you know people don't really hear about yeah. uh, and they don't know their process and all that so thank you so much for sharing so much I think uh, of your process now where can people find you before yeah. we go give a shout out to where people can find you yeah i, I am i'm on i'm on twitter so okay. it's eugene e-u-g-e-n-e n-g underscore vcap okay vision cap so it's v-c-a-p okay uh you, I'm, I'm very active on twitter you can you can find me there i, I tend to share a lot of stuff do you have a thinking do you have a blog or anything that uh, uh no i do have a substack so if you go on my twitter you can find my profile i uh, have new, uh, newslet- newsletters that i send ad hoc okay. uh, every every other couple of weeks okay uh, they do take a, t- a bit of time so i tend to you know when they're when they're really thoughtful and then then I, then only then then i send them out so i don't try to make an effort to send one on a weekly basis or or not so uh, on twitter is where you can find me uh yeah and i think that's that, that's the best way to, to reach me you know, Great. that you can dm me and stuff no issues Great. Okay, once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Looking forward to a part two, perhaps in the future. Maybe we can talk about individual specific stocks, yeah. right? Some of your ideas. Or we can record this in Singapore. Yeah, mm. maybe, man. I yeah, if the borders la. open up. I, I don't know. Malaysia say it's Q3 or Q4 vaccination. But <laughs> I, I don't know. You never know. Right? Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And guys, I hope you all enjoyed this uh, blockbuster podcast, or at least it's a blockbuster to me. I don't know about you, John. Yeah, yeah definitely. And guys, yeah, you know, uh, see you in the next podcast. Yeah. Thank yeah. you a lot, MG. Thank you a lot, John. All right. It's uh, been bye. a delightful session with you guys. <laughs> Thank you.